After years on the road, Timmy parked the van and picked up the mic to bring you this podcast that features interviews with people from hardcore to hair metal. This is Talk To Me with your host, Joshua Toomey. What's up, everybody? Welcome to Talk To Me on Lost Anarchy Radio. This is episode 81, and this is my best of 2016 episode. We're going to listen to some music from the year. We're going to listen to some snippets of uh, past episodes from the year, and I'm going to go down and break down all episodes that came out in 2016. Uh, so let's get into this episode. We're not going to do any iTunes reviews. We're not going to do any covers of the week. We're just going to get straight into the episode. This one is going to be a lot of fun, and uh, hopefully you guys enjoy it as much as I do. All right, episode 21 came out in January of 2016. Uh, what a great way to start the year off. We have Mark Rizzo of Soulfly talking about his time in the Misfits, Soulfly, El Nino, talking about uh, his relationship with Max Cavalera, a lot of great stuff. Episode 22 is Gary Noon of Walking With Giants. He had put out a great album with uh, with Clint Lowry playing guitar on it, uh, a couple of the guys from Alter Bridge and Creed on it. Uh, a lot of fun stuff, man. It was very cool. His story was pretty neat. Enjoyed that one. Episode 23, Tony Campos of Fear Factory X Static X. Uh, this one made a lot of news because he had made some uh, comments about Wayne Static on this episode. And, you know, probably my biggest episode up to that point was this episode. Once it went, uh, once it hit Blabbermouth, it went crazy. So let's check out a little bit of uh, Tony Campos on Talk To Me. Yo. Hey, hey what's Tony Campos. Hey, Tony Campos. How you doing, man? Uh, doing all right. Cool, man. It's Josh Toomey with the uh, Talk To Me podcast. Appreciate you coming on. Yeah, man. No problem. <laughs> man, I just want to start off with saying, uh, you know, with the resume that you've got, you're at Static X, you got Ministry, Soulfly, and now Fear Factory. Man, when are you going to let all of us other bass players have a job, man? What's going on? <laughs> well, uh, there, there, there's plenty of other gigs out there, man. <laughs> I don't know. Every time I turn around, you're taking them all. You, you know, you got starving bass players out there, dude. Well, you know, when when when, uh, when I when I leave one, a spot opens up. So there you go. True, that is true. Yeah, it's like every time I turn around, I'm like, you're getting like prime gigs. It's crazy. Yeah, no, you know, seriously though, I've I've been really lucky. You know, just, uh, with with gigs I've been getting. You know, like uh, most of the bands I've played with since. Static fell apart, you know, or like gigs I would have chopped my left butt off to be in, you know. <laughs> right, yeah, that's yeah. definitely a murderer's row of gigs. But that's the one thing too. And uh, just you know, I grew up playing bass when I was. Uh, you know, <laughs> get the dog. Sorry, my dogs are fucking running around. Oh no, that's all right. They can be on the podcast too. But uh, <laughs> we're very uh, we're very friendly here. But uh, you know, just growing up, I mean, when I was like 11, not to go too much into myself, but, you know, I started playing bass because uh, I felt like all my friends were like, I'm going to be a guitar player. I'm going to be a guitar player. And I was like, you know what? I'm pretty sure bass players are going to be in need. So I'm going to play bass to be in the band. And, uh, you know, right? it, definitely, yeah. it, definitely, it definitely worked out. You know? Yeah, that's kind of how I fell into it. You know, uh, a friend of mine, uh, we were in uh, junior high school uh, and uh, he moved out of the neighborhood. uh when we were in elementary school, he moved back in the neighborhood uh, in junior high, and he was a metalhead, and he played guitar, and he's like, hey, Tony, why don't you go get a bass? I'm like, okay. That was it. That's why I played bass. <laughs> cool. Who were, your, uh, who were your major influences when you were a kid, man? Uh, when I was a kid, uh, Cliff Burton from Metallica. Totally. Was definitely, uh, 
Yeah, was he was the the main guy, uh, and then um, uh, two other guys that that really influenced me. Um, uh, Dan Loker from SOD, nice, and and uh, Rob Nicholson from uh, the band Crooked Slaughter. Uh, he's now better known as Blasco, right? Um, but back then, you know, he played in the this awesome hardcore punk band called Crooked Slaughter, and he played really fast, and you know, had an awesome tone. And, yeah, those three guys were my big influences on me early on. All right, episode 24 is the 12-volt negative earth. Where did all the Sunshine Go album break down? Um, up to that point, I'd kind of talked a little bit about 12-volt negative earth here and there with uh, with past guests or people that may that I may have met through the band and uh, just kind of wanted to get everyone that you know maybe didn't know me uh, prior to the podcast hear a little bit of the music that I had done prior to that so I broke down our, our seminal debut album called Where Did All the Sunshine Go had all of the members of the band that played on it minus Richie the drummer <laughs> but he came on later on to talk about it a little bit played all the songs on it so if you want to get a nice little uh, history lesson in my early bands go back to episode 24 with the 12 volt negative earth episode so on to episode 25 and this is Bones of Bones X Stuck Mojo uh, he had kind of came on to like maybe defend his honor about some comments I made uh, later in 2015 uh, when I had Fra- uh, Frank Fonsere on the podcast talking about you know the differences between Bones and uh, Chris Jericho as vocalists. I think Bones took some offense to that, and uh, as you will hear, this is what he had to say. So let's check out my conversation with Bones. Tell me about, uh, tell me about this Bones record that you got out. I'm sorry. First of all, have you listened to it? I listened to a little bit of it, yeah. I listened to the song with Jason. Just a little bit of it. Now you want to do a podcast with me. Hey, I was a big fan so of Stuck Mojo. Man, it ain't about Stuck Mojo. It's about Bones. I know that's it is. The, that's the premise of this whole thing, man. And I'm not going to lie to you. How long have we known each other, dude? Me and you? Yeah, me uh, and you. I don't think we have. Uh, we've met a couple times over the years, but I don't you know, I don't know how well we know each over other. The, over, right, but over the years, how long have we been associated with one another? Uh, if you want to get technical, my band opened for Stuck Mojo back in the late 90s, so, you know, I've, I've been around. Right, right, okay, then. <laughs> now, you're not giving me a fair shake, Joshua. Why is that? Because I listened to the podcast, brother. You didn't think I was going to ask you about that singing thing? I mean, I think you and Chris Jericho have two totally different uh, styles of, you know, singing. You said someone that can actually sing, Joshua. Golly, I thought I was your friend, man. <laughs> no, I was saying as opposed to, you know, a rapper. I am not just a rapper. I'm a vocal. I am a lyrical expressionist. Right. You understand? I encompass more than just rap. I am hip-hop, though. Okay? I could do more than just flip some rhymes, you know? I... I have grown, grown, grown exponentially. I'm not going to attack anyone else, but I think I do pretty good out there. Very cool. <laughs> now, see, you just went very cool. You don't agree, do you? What's that? That I can say. I mean, from what I, you know, I mean, if you want to get technical, I mean, everything that I ever listened to, I would assume that, you know, a lot of the, uh, the vocals were rich doing the singing and not you, so I don't know where we're going with this. Okay, we, uh, you know who wrote those, most of those melodies was me. Okay, but did you sing those melodies? No, because at the time I was still trying to find my way. Okay. But we talked 10, fucking 20 years ago, as opposed to now. I don't know where we're going with this, man. I was trying to have a positive well, we're conversation going, with you. But uh, we are going to have a positive conversation. The whole point is, I've known you for a long time. Okay. Seeing you, associated with you. 
I'm not getting defensive or anything. I'm just questioning how do you feel it about me as an artist personally? Not even on a general thing. Do you think I've grown? Do you think I can sing? I just want to know. I'm curious. I'm doing homework. I want to know where I could get better at. I mean, I think you are you. I don't know where we're going with this. I think you are bones. You, you know, you have a specific style. I think it's a great okay. style. You know, I, I, you know, you don't necessarily have to no. go and, and become a, you know. An okay, actual. let me let, let me start over, Joshua. The reason why I'm asking you this question is, I'm, I have to. If I'm going to recreate the sport we created, I have to know where I could get better at as an artist. You being an artist yourself, you being very critical of most of the people you know, that you look up to or adore or whatever, because you are a critical artist, in my opinion, because you know what it's up, you know? You, you, you're you in a band. You know what it is. You know what it takes. Yeah. So for me, I want to know, you know, I think you're kind of critical in some instances. You know, listening to what I, I hear, you're questioning with other artists in my realm and the people in my camp. You're a little bit more pinpoint than most interviewers. Do you understand what I'm saying? Don't get defensive. No, get plus, you're, you're like a, you're like a, uh, uh, what's his name? Um, uh, like a Steve Harvey or like a, a Martel Williams. You know what I'm saying? Uh, very candid in okay. your thing. And I'm a candid person in general. Okay. So don't get defensive, first of all. Okay? All right. It's a compliment. All right? I'm asking you because... I listen to the podcast with Frank. I want to know where I could get better at. I think, I mean, if we're going along the lines of the questioning of the, you know, being in a, you know, being in a band with an actual like rock and roll singer, as in Chris Jericho, as compared to, okay. to a rapper, is exactly what I said in Bones, which obviously I love new metal. I loved rap metal. I loved what you guys did. And it has, it was nothing to do with specific talents. It would be, you know, I play bass. You know, would it would right. it be would it be you know if someone questioned how would it feel playing with a guy that plays straightforward bass as compared to like slapping funk bass? You know, that's uh-huh. that's all it was. It wasn't a question of how does it feel to be in a band with a singer. Now it was how do you feel being in a band with two different ty- types of singers? Right. Okay. So it's you not still about defensive, Josh. Stop, man. What's that? <laughs> You're still being kind of defensive. I apologize. I didn't mean to throw you off like that. Damn. No, you're all good, Bones. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that. That's always a great one. People always go back to that one as uh, one of their favorite episodes of the podcast. Episode 26, Frank Novinick returns. Frank Novinick came on to talk about his beloved Denver Broncos. We did a Super Bowl preview episode. Yancey Turner of uh, Parrish Lane came on that episode. We broke down the Broncos-Panthers Super Bowl. Obviously the Broncos win, so Frank Novinick, you get that one. On to episode 27, that's Michael Del Pizzo of Sunflower Dead. Uh, That band is doing a lot of great stuff stuff right now. This is probably one of his early podcast interviews. We talked a lot about Kiss and Alice Cooper and imagery and music, things like that. That's a fun episode to go back to. Okay, on to episode 28, Mike Sarkeesian of Spineshank. This was uh, an episode of a friend of mine who I've known in this music business for God knows 20 some odd years. Uh, great, great episode. Great guy. Uh, you know, congratulations to his, uh, you know, him getting married a little while back. Uh, doing a lot of great stuff. I believe he has his own brand of vodka out now. I need to get him back on the podcast so we can talk about his vodka. 
But uh, he came on and we talked. Uh, this is going to be a little snippet about him talking about the Sunset Strip in the mid '90s and how Corn, Spineshank, Fear Factory, Cold Chamber, all those bands kind of brought people back to the Sunset Strip. So let's go ahead and check that out real quick. Let's listen to my conversation with Mike Sarkeesian. I, I remember Corn specifically. I had the demo and uh, a few. Yeah. Down to uh, Cal State Fullerton, they were playing like the cafeteria or something. This is like I, I don't think they had a record deal in yet, and uh, you know, so that was like they were definitely a local band in LA. But at the time, there wasn't really a scene because you know, with the, with the LA scene, with the whole Southern California scene, it was just weird. Like after the whole glam thing died out in like the early early nineties, there was like a two year of uh, two three years of recess basically. There was nothing going on. So it wasn't like people were at the clubs all the time, checking out bands. You know, Grab was dead, that whole thing. And then, uh, you know, Corn was definitely um, instrumental in reigniting that whole thing. But um, by the time they came out, that was already... They they were a local band when, you know, me personally, I discovered them. And we had the demo and everything. And then, but but it, it happened pretty quickly for them. It was all right. Just the same way it happened for us. I think we played our first show in the beginning of 1997. And then uh, by, I think, October of that year. I think January 11th, actually, of 97 was our first ever show. And by October that year, we had signed a record deal. So, you know, I think Corn. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure. You know, I don't want to be quoted on this, I guess. Don't really know the timeline, but they, they were pretty, you know, uh, it's not like they spent four years or three years playing the clubs and then they got signed as corn. Before that, they were, uh, I think they were called uh, LAPD. So it's, no, that's, that's, it's pretty interesting, you know what I mean? It's, it's pretty interesting how that, and, and by, by them actually getting a record deal, it sort of uh, reignited this scene that later became known as, you know, whatever, the LA scene or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, it was definitely a crazy time because you got to look back at a, uh... You know, even uh, you know when Corn came out, they were there was such a culmination of kind of everything going on at the time, all wrapped into one. You know, because at the time, you know, I was listening to a lot of like I was listening to a lot of death metal, like you know, any you know thrash metal, death metal, you know, Sepultura, Slayer, uh, you know, Biohazard, Machine Head, and all that stuff was was still kind of coming up. And then uh, you know, you still like Faith No More and and the Melvins and all that stuff too. And you know that. Corn just kind of came out and I think uh, encapsulated all that stuff kind of into one band. Yeah, exactly. That's that's exactly how I felt about it. You know, it was just so heavy, but it was a slowed down. You know, it didn't have the the needle metal you know riffs. I guess you would say it had like weird like that. It was it was the genius and simplicity in that band, and they sounded so different than anyone else that it was just like this the sound from wherever you know like another planet sort of. But then, you know, like at the same time, there was also uh, uh, other bands that were doing a lot of different stuff, like bands such as Fear Factory and Machine Head. And, you know, Machine Head sort of like reinvented your quote-unquote classic metal sound and just kind of put their own spin on it, a little more of a hardcore spin on it. Um, you know, and, but it, it wasn't really a scene. It sort of became a scene after a while. You know, all these bands yeah. I mentioned was... You know, it, it wasn't like they were playing the L.A. clubs, you know, every weekend. It wasn't really that. It became that probably, you know, after Korn put out their first record, like right around that time. That's when, you know, Death 
kind of we discovered Deftones because they used to play shows with Corn and um, Jesus like Snot and uh, System, you know, all, all those bands, and and we're just all like these kids, you know. I mean, I was like not even old enough to drink. I was never mind. I wasn't even like an adult at the time, and uh, it was just kind of weird, and it was pretty cool, you know, just playing all these shows, and there was like a weird camaraderie going on with everybody, you know, everybody kind of helped each other out, and would call each other up, like, hey, let's let's do a show at the Whiskey together, or, you know, let's do a show at the Roxy together, that kind of stuff. So it was pretty cool, like, it, it was definitely a really cool time in uh, metal. All right, and on to episode 29. This is Matt Snell and Brian Jackson of NVIDIA. NVIDIA are doing a lot of great stuff right now. Uh, this was definitely one of their early interviews. Great to have them on. Uh, Blabbermouth did take this one a little bit. Matt Snell had some comments about uh, about his time in Five Finger Death Punch that they kind of ran with. So it was cool to have him on there and uh, you know talking a little bit about Five Finger Death Punch or his time in Five Finger Death Punch and their new band, NVIDIA. Make sure you're checking those guys out. That's a great band. And on to episode 30, the episode that would not die. This is the episode where Eric Brittingham came on. We went through basically like a whole career, you know, I think I talked to him for like an hour and 20 minutes, something crazy. But uh, somewhere along the lines, he made a comment about Tom Kiefer never coming back to Cinderella. Man, Blabbermouth took it. EddieTrunk.com took it. Uh, PRP took it and ran with it. Made a lot of headlines. And uh, any time that Tom Kiefer would say anything, for months after that, they would still refer back to, well, while uh, Eric Brittingham was on Talk To Me, he said this. So uh, I kind of got a great story on here uh, from Eric Brittingham talking about uh, getting Fred Corey in the band. Uh, this is probably one of my favorite stories on the podcast. So check this out. This is Eric Brittingham talking about getting Fred Corey in Cinderella. You know, so, so, we, so we let him go. And, uh, you know, we just, uh, you know, and we went through the whole thing again. We're just like, we're just not finding like the guy. And, uh, yeah, which was like, you know, we had so many more people because, like, at that point now, we had just finished recording a record for a major label. So we had drummers, like, you know, all over, all over, like, the country, like, submitting, uh, you know, tapes and whatever. So we're sifting through all that and, you know, having people come out. And nothing was feeling right. And, um, actually, Tom was, uh, was out in, in L.A. with Andy uh, mastering, like, the record. And, um uh, and you know, and Jeff and I were 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 still like uh, sifting for drummers, and uh, you know, and we were coming up empty. And then uh, we finally got a package from well, no, well, well, we had this package from Fred, and it was like there was no picture, and, and it was just like, and his name was Fred. We're like, okay, like <laughs> you know, this guy's got to be uh, look like a toad, you know, so. Right. You know, I mean, you know, I mean, like we didn't even listen to it, and you know, we knew he played on the Chastain record, and the playing was great and whatever. So we're like, okay, well, uh, you know, so we got in touch. We're like, can you send some pictures? And he sent some pictures. We're like, okay, he, he looks fine, and but he was really young. He was like eighteen, and um, so you know, you know, so we uh, so we said, sure. So we set up an an audition. I remember coming into the club and it was kind of funny because every other drummer, you know, just kind of either drove there or like whatever. And, you know, and, uh, uh, we get there and there's all these road cases with Fred Corey, like, you know, like stenciled on them and <laughs> what the hell. And okay. And, uh, you know, and then Fred, Fred shows up and he's like, he looks, he looks like a little kid. Like, yeah. oh crap. And he, and he sat down and he played like 
like every well, we gave him three songs like to learn, and he said, and he knew the entire record and played it like perfect. We're like, uh, you have you have the gig, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, I, and I called Tom and I told him, Tom, it's like, are you sure? And we're like, yeah, I mean, the 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 guy just came and he's like, he, he, he's like the threat guy. I was like, yeah, it's Fred Corey. He's like. Hmm, okay, I don't because I think because yeah, you know you think of you know Fred Flintstone or whatever it's like Fred <laughs> is just you know not really yeah. like you know like the rock star name and we're like okay but yeah and then Tom came and he's like cool yeah so Fred was the guy. All right, on to episode thirty-one. Kurt Vanderhoof of Metal Church. This was a man. Metal Church was one of my all-time favorite bands as a kid. Getting getting a chance to talk to Kurt Vanderhoof was amazing. And you know, he had a few comments about the guys in Nirvana, and uh, Blabbermouth obviously picked that up real quick and ran with it. Made it one of my bigger episodes. And so, uh, so yeah, let's check out Kurt Vanderhoof talking about Nirvana. There's another little band from Aberdeen called Nirvana. Everyone knows. Yeah, um, I heard of them. I've yeah, heard of those guys. <laughs> maybe a little bit. I don't know. <laughs> kind of a three-piece little little pop rock grunge band, but yeah, uh, kind of like a Rush tribute. Or something. Yeah, something like that. You know, what kind of dealings did you have with those guys back then? Nothing really. I mean, other than you know, they they. I know Chris. You yeah, know, he he was kind of a friend of mine, but uh, you know, they kind of came out to our rehearsals and stuff when we'd have party rehearsals at the barn where we started. You know, but for the most part, you know, they we were a big joke to them. You know, they were the cool guys, and we were the old metal guys. Yeah. You know, I, you know, even on Bleach, he's Cobain spelled his name like mine, K U R D T. You know, I could <laughs> never quite figure that out, but I kind of put two and together. They were poking fun. You know, these guys, you know, like the Melvin sink where I'm just obnoxious and, you know, and all this stuff because they're too they're too cool. Yeah. You know, we're a bunch of rock stars, and they're too cool. So, so you know, fuck them. <laughs> oh man yeah i mean i always knew that there was a big disconnect with the uh with the you know seattle grunge scene and the and the you know obviously with I you mean, guys i never had any trouble with them yeah i always liked nirvana i thought it was great and i liked the melvins and i thought we were friends you know especially buzz and i i mean it was our, i was our first lead singer for god's sake when they were playing punk covers and, you know and then i'd come find out later that yeah yeah we were a big joke and i was a big joke to all these guys so whatever well, I think looking back, if you Whatever. talk to uh, talk to a lot of those guys, I think a lot of them secretly enjoyed, uh, you know, all the '80s and you know '90s metal, and but they were, they were uh, they told not to to really talk about it, you know, and that stuff. When you go back to go back to those old interviews, yeah. it's like Alice and Chains and all those guys. Oh, those guys are great. Yeah, I yeah. like all those guys. Those guys have been really cool and still cool to us and everything too. You know, they were all great. We were hanging out, but the Grays Harbor bands, you know, the Nirvanas and the Melvins and all that kind of stuff. You know, they. You know, so again, especially had you know something against B apparently. So, you know, I thought we were friends, but apparently not. So, you know, fuck those guys. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's one way to put it. Oh man. <clears throat> yeah, well, I mean, I never did. I never did anything to them. You know, I always liked them. I thought they were great. You know, we yeah. were, I thought we were friends. You know, but the whole Nirvana thing, I you know, I just kind of I kind of figured out later and through talking with people that you know when they were doing their thing because they were all punky and cool that you know we're the metal guys and we're stupid and we're posers and rock stars. And so, so it was really cool not to like us, especially me being from Aberdeen and, you know, those guys being from Aberdeen, they're like, look, those guys, just a little punk. (laughs) Well, Well, I think it's kind of funny too, because I mean, and you're just, you personally, I mean, your history of, uh, 
you know, your punk band, pre, pre, you know, you were at a, like a hardcore punk band prior to Metal Church in what, San Francisco, oh, yeah, correct? Yeah, absolutely. And then you kind of go from yeah, like absolutely. that, go from that world to going back to Aberdeen to start like, you know, just a, basically like almost a, like a new wave of British heavy metal band, you know, that's a, you know, that's that kinda, exactly what it was. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's two worlds colliding there with, uh, you know, because I think well, that, that was the beauty of the whole metal, the, the new wave of British heavy metal. And that was the appeal of it. It was, it was taking the energy and attitude of punk and taking the, the more musical skills and things of metal and throwing it together. That's what it was. And that was like, Oh fuck, this is awesome. Right. Like I can get the aggression and the volume and the power and the speed of punk rock, but yet musicality, you know? So hearing Maiden for the first time, it's like, Oh boy, I'm in. <laughs> one of those change your life records you know and you're like now that's what i want to exactly. do kind of thing. yeah it's like ah perfect now we're talking always funny always funny kurt rules all right on to episode 32 james morris of downset got a little bit of love from this one i'm from the prp but nothing too crazy uh james morris a great bass player um you know like i said in the episode you know he oh, 12 volt negative earth opened for downset one time and uh, james morris came up to me after the show and said wow man it's great to see some talent up there and that was probably when I was like 18, 19 years old, and it blew my mind because I had seen Downset years before and just was mesmerized by his bass playing. So very cool to have James Morris on the podcast and uh, getting to reminisce with him about that stuff. Episode 33, Mark Hunter of Chimera. Chimera is one of those bands, dude. Such a great band. Uh, so so much fun. Uh, one of my all-time favorite bands. You know, I'm going to say it a lot because, like I always say, this is my show, and so I'm going to have my all-time favorite bands on. So, yeah, Mark Hunter of Chimera, you know, huge bucket list guest, a lot of great stuff. And uh, here's a little snippet of me talking to Mark Hunter. <laughs> You've actually posted a link to that Farm Club uh, thing that you guys did, and whew, I almost feel bad for you watching it, man. It was That's a, that's a time capsule right there. Like, horrible. <laughs> oh, just like... Just down to, you know, going to, to Pizza Hut and watching, you know, everybody and, you know, delivering pizzas. And, oh, man, I was I just watching it is so crazy. You know, you got to have like a Jinko sticker on your, you know, practice room door. And, sure. I mean, it was like a, that, that's like 1999 in a time capsule. It was beautiful. Uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and and for sure, that was such a fun time. And, and, you know, while being part of Farm Club, looking at it, it's, it's like kind of like that awkward high school photo uh that year somewhat embarrassed of it at the same time like maybe that high school photo <laughs> got you laid a bunch <laughs> right well like looking back on it and and i actually uh, you know like i said i went back listened to a bunch of stuff today and i actually listened to it in the old podcast from like 2011 that you were on and uh you actually brought up farm club on that and i hadn't thought about farm club since probably 1999 and it was like like, but when that was happening, the internet was in such an infancy of uh, not even the PRP, but like when they were the Pimp Rock Palace, and and you had uh, you know Farm Club, and and there was a few other sites on there that that you could you know get your stuff on, and uh, get out there. But yeah, that like Farm Club was like such a you know you up it was it was so funny watching it because they were just like make sure to upload your music to this, and and you know even back then getting an MP3 was such a you know, a task you had to, you know, had to know somebody that knew how to convert something to an MP3 <laughs> and to upload. So, I mean, so, I mean, for the yeah. fact that you guys even uploaded something to farm club is, it was, it was probably a task. Well, you know, we always, we always kind of had a lucky, uh, situation. Our keyboard player, Chris was always very com computer and tech savvy. And we, uh, were able to cut a lot of corners and save a lot of time. And, 
and money too, uh, because he knew how to do all those sort of things and make us a website. And and he actually befriended a lot of those uh, webzines like the PRP. And and through him, you know, he he was able to get our band uh, recognized by a lot of these internet things that you know right. we had no idea what that was even meaning at the time <laughs> and uh basically it helped you know he taught us a lot about it too so um it was uh luck and and farm club too luck as well that's a connection of his somebody um that he was friends with uh, named marcy worked as part of the, the company so she was able to to help uh get us uh, facilitated through everything, and I'm not sure if like she helped get us on, but I think we actually had to get the votes. But um, I know that there was like, I think helped maybe get our foot in the door or at least. Right. But the uh, yeah, all that stuff came through our through our keyboard player Chris at the time, and uh, the experience itself was amazing. Flown out to California, we were still an unsigned band, and just treated basically like royalty and we were standing with a lot of standing there with a lot of uh, popular musicians and pop stars and it was quite a surreal experience it put us in this uh limelight uh, really early and made us hungrier once we uh w- rolled back to Cleveland and played to a, <laughs> to a crowd of you know 100 people in a pub <laughs> yeah just looking back I mean this little farm club shows uh I just, you know, it was one of those shows where you would check it out, you would watch it. It was, you know, almost like a, like an early new metal American Idol or something. You know, like who was the host of that? Was that was that a uh, Matt Pinfield was on that? Yes. Wasn't that the host? Yep, exactly. How was that guy? He was really nice. Uh, knew 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 his stuff about music. Um, yeah, definitely the the right guy for the job. He he was uh, an encyclopedia of music. And since that show was so diverse in music, from people like our band to Mandy Moore <laughs> playing in the same day, right. you really have to have a, a versatile knowledge of music in general. And he was the right guy for the job. One more, one more new metal question, and then we'll kind of move on. But uh, when you cut your dreads, I had dreads for <laughs> no. This is this is a real question. <laughs> I had dreads for I think four years, like from you know ninety nine to like two thousand three, somewhere in there. Uh, ridiculously, you know, just the time period or something like that. But are, do you ever regret cutting them? Uh, no, I don't regret them at all, and only because I guess I maybe I didn't experience them into ever thinking that I like I liked them like. I had problems with them all the time. Like the, the reason I cut them is because the, the my, my top started to grow completely different, and since I have such curly hair, it started to look like I was going to have a afro dread mullet going on. So <laughs> it just didn't didn't work right for me. Um, I you know the only thing I miss about it in in terms of is the aesthetic in a live setting. It looks right. really, really cool, but. Um, and it doesn't look nearly as cool for some guy with little to no hair head banging. <laughs> and, right. You know, and I grew up, as you know, listening to a lot of the. If, if you were in the metal in the eighties and nineties, everyone had long hair. You weren't right. It was very rare for the guy to the one guy to be bald, and it was like 
kind of weird to look at, you know, it just, <laughs> it just didn't sit right. <laughs> so no, I was under the impression you had to have long hair to be in a, a, <laughs> a metal band. But as time has progressed, obviously that's no longer the story. <laughs> This is David Ellison from Megadeth, and you're listening to the Talk To Me Podcast. All right, and that was some Chimera featuring Mark Hunter there on vocals. 
And uh, now on to episode 34 with Christopher Voles of Flaw. Flaw is actually out doing some great stuff. I know they just had another big lineup change. They just uh, did a tour with Dope. They're out doing a lot of great stuff. And this was uh, this was recorded a little while back. Very cool to have Chris Voles on the podcast. Episode 35, Tim King of Soil. Another great one. You know, you can't can't deny, you know, Halo and all those great songs. And plus uh, what he's doing over there with Pavement Music. Episode 36, Brock Lindell of 36 Crazy Fists. Uh, you know, episode 36, you have to get a member of 36 Crazy Fists on. Brock Lindell, a very underrated singer, very cool band, a lot of great stuff going on there. Episode 37, one of my idols, one of my all-time idols came on the podcast, and that's David Ellison of Megadeth. Uh, when Tom Hazart hooked this one up for me, I about freaked out when he said, hey, you want to talk to Dave tomorrow? I was like, absolutely. So we got to talk for a little while. Great episode, a lot of good stuff. Got to talk about you know his coffee brand, the PR or the Blabbermouth picked that up, ran with it. So I got the break that he had uh, he had started a coffee brand on the to- breaking news on the Talk to Me podcast when you're talking about coffee. But uh, let's listen to a little bit of David Elfson and uh, maybe why he started a record label in 2015. So let's move on to your label. You know what made you want to to start a label in the you know in this uh, climate in the year 2015, 2016. You know, um, it's funny. Like a lot of things in life, they just sort of land in your lap when you least expect it. And you know, I've had this uh, this mindset here in in the last I don't know 10, 15 years that you know just say yes to things. I love that Jim Carrey movie, Yes Man. That's like my that should be like a music business mandatory movie to watch, you know, because, um, you know, so many things, you know, our business has certainly changed and, you know, it makes, it makes artists scared. Um, it makes people kind of kick back in their heels. Certainly the internet revolution has changed everything in our lives. And the music business was one of the first to sort of, you know, get, get caught up in the wild and woolly, uh, you know, World Wide Web, and um, mostly what it's changed is it's changed certainly the distribution channel of how we buy, receive, you know, music and the arts and entertainment. Um, and I think probably from the traditional model of the of the business uh, in Hollywood and New York, and you know, we're sort of the the epicenters of the business lie. You know, they're, they they struggled how to first they fought it, and then they realized that was a losing battle, and then they tried, quickly tried to figure out how do we harness it. So we can continue to make money from it. Um, and so I think, you know, some of those things have kind of shaken out a little bit now. And, you know, for me, I, you know, my goal is not to be a mogul. My goal is not to, well, I want to, you know, be over on the business side. I mean, I like music, man. I'm a fan first and foremost. That's how I became a bass player. It's how I got into bands. It's how I became a, you know, a performer and a recording artist and a songwriter and all the things that I do in my own life. And, and, you know, because I wrote that music business book many years ago, which was just a real passion of mine, um, you know, born out of my own experiences, just handing that down to the next generation who are coming up. Um, a lot of things in those book, in that book, making music, your business. When I did the audio book for that, um, just, uh, I guess it was last year I did the audio book for it. I had to even rewrite chapters for the audio book, you know, because there were things, you know, I had formulas in there that applied to the cassettes and, you know, <laughs> music videos, you know, so I was like, oh boy. Yeah. So I kind of on the fly, I rewrote it, you know, so making music your business, the audio book version is really kind of volume two. It's kind of the updated version of it, you know. 
Um, and what and what's scary is you could probably do a volume three, you know, this year and a volume totally. four next year because everything is just changing so fast. Totally, totally. And so, you know, to kind of, you know, that's the long answer to your question. But, you know, the question, you know, is, is a good one. So, you know, what happened is, is um, you know, I'm always in touch with all kinds of different people. And, you know, it, I'm certainly even with big, big bands like Megadeth and things. You know, some of the things stay a little bit the same um, because some of the rules of the business just can't be rewritten. I mean, think the die has been cast and it is what it is. But I think certainly for the smaller, younger, new, emerging artists looking to get into the game, the rules have absolutely changed, you know. And, you know, the big money's not there on the front end for the artist because the big money's not there on the back end for the, you know, for the infrastructure of the of the record industry anymore. So... You know, for the, you know, uh, I think you talked to my partner, Tom Hazart, um, who uh, is the operations manager and A&R for my label. Um, you know, the first thing I said to him is I said, listen, man, I, I'm only into doing this for one reason, and that is that I can offer hopefully an on-ramp into the music business for some artists who have worked hard, who are willing to work even harder, and can really bring, you know, deliver the goods, um, because... Um, it's not for everybody. I mean, the, the, the entry level requirements, in my opinion, are still the same. Um, while the internet has made making records and putting things out through, you know, the various CD baby and reverb nation, a lot of these different, you know, outlets, while it's made that more accessible to people, you know, great songs are still great songs and, and you still have to have a great act and a great song. Uh, in order to achieve greatness. So, um, I said, listen, if this label can offer, you know, artists who, you know, we feel are really, you know, worthy of, of that opportunity um, by their songs and by their work ethic. And and if, if we can offer that to some to some artists to, you know, to put their music out, then then I'm certainly interested in, in giving it a try. So that's where we are. You know, we have, um, I think, about a dozen titles now in our catalog. Um, and, you know, artists bring us, uh, you know, pretty much finished product and uh, you know, bands today, they realize, man, they got to do a lot of the work themselves. You know, they realize that they've got to bring kind of the full caliber of everything to the table. And, um, you know, we can offer them a distribution channel and some resources to, you know, to push their 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 records out. And, and hopefully that gives them a, you know, kind of jump starts their their career and they can then be out doing the things that are necessary with tours and shows and and um and videos and you know the kind of move you know that's sort of the starting point is once we push yeah. that record out all right episode 38 tom hazart tom hazart came on tom is uh you know pretty much has been affiliated with all of your favorite bands ever and uh he's such a great guy very cool ally to have in this business he helped me get the show onto lost anarchy radio which is something we will talk about later but tom hazart very cool guy very cool guy to have on the podcast definitely need to have him on again Episode 39, Lejean Witherspoon of Seven Dust. Man, I was on like a murderer's row in 2016. I cannot wait to get uh, 2017 rolling. But yeah, Lejean Witherspoon came on. I only got about 20 minutes with him, but uh, still a great episode. Great to talk to him and uh, you know just hear him talk about being a father and all that fun stuff. Episode 40, Ro Coley of War Machine Marketing. Uh, Ro used to work for Roadrunner Records. He did a lot of great stuff. So if you're wanting to hear a good episode, go back to episode 40 with Ro Coley and myself. All right, episode 41, Rich Ward of Stuck Mojo and Fozzie. Yes, this <laughs> this podcast is definitely the Stuck Mojo Fozzie podcast. If you want some Stuck Mojo Fozzie news, you come to the Talk To Me podcast. But man, Rich can talk. 
this is one episode that I think 45 minutes in, I said, all right, I only have a couple more questions. And then we ended up talking for 45 more minutes. A lot of great stuff here. Rich is a talker. Man, man, Rich is a talker. But uh, let's listen to a little bit, a little snippet of uh, Rich Ward and myself talking. Here we go. Just kind of getting into it, you know, this is kind of funny. You're now the third member of Fozzie and third member of Stuck Mojo that's now been on the podcast, and I'm just at, like, episode 42, so nice. like one-third of... <laughs> yeah. So, you know, Billy came on episode two, Frank came on episode, like, 18, and then, uh, you know, the Wonderful Bones came on a few episodes after Frank to defend his honor, but we're not going to yeah. get into that. <laughs> well, I, I, I was, it was crazy because I um, Frank... Uh, called me a few months ago and he said, hey man, there's this guy, a really cool guy who he's got a podcast and do you mind if I do it? And uh, of course, that's just the cool thing about our band is that of course I don't mind if he does it. And of course nobody would, but we just kind of have, you know, we're a band and everybody communicates yeah. and that's really important for everybody to just kind of, um, you know, and also we were kind of in a in a period of time where there was some, you know, there were, things were in flux and Frank's like, you know, what can I say and what shouldn't I say and that kind of stuff. And I think actually it was your podcast that broke that, you know, that, um, that line. Yeah. The story, but yeah, the lineup change. Yeah. It was funny too, because I did even when, uh, when that came up in the podcast, I asked him, you know, just a random question about, I was like, so this new album is going to be, you know, bones and Corey and rich and you. Right. And he was like, well, actually, and uh, I kind of felt bad after he answered the question because I thought I missed it. I was like, did I miss that they even announced the lineup change? And and I, you know, I I just left it alone and didn't even think about it. And then uh, and like a week later or so, I read. I was like, oh, you know, the new Stuck Mojo lineup. Clicked on it and it was like, you know, Frank Fonsery tells the Talk to Me podcast. And I was like, oh, I'm breaking news over here, and I didn't even realize it. Yeah, and part of that was is just because. You know, I didn't want to make any announcements about the new lineup without having music for people to listen to. That was so important. Um, you know, we after we did we did the reunion show uh, the day after Christmas, which was kind of the you know kind of homecoming at hometown Atlanta show, and then we did two shows in April, one in Charlotte, and then we did a festival uh, in Virginia, and we kind of knew. The Charlotte and the Virginia show were together, um, and it wasn't really until kind of after the Charlotte show, I was like, oh, you know, and all of us were the same way. We all kind of had the same, there, there is a sense of, uh, that people would like to frame this as a rich versus bones or bones versus rich thing, which it never has been. It's, it's always been a, we're a band and we make decisions as a band and, um, Part of it was, too, is that after the third show, which was uh, the festival, uh, I, I had already, Corey and I had spoken, because Corey actually filled in uh, on bass for us, uh, for Fozzie, on a European run that we did. And so, oh, that's cool. Yeah, it was, it was great. We were getting along really good. I mean, Corey obviously had, had got this offer to go play for St. Asonia, and he said, man, you know, I don't really know what's going on schedule-wise now because I'm the new guy, but I am in the band, and I'm I'm kind of waiting on confirmation of what the touring schedule is going to be looking like and stuff. But this is pretty much looking like my deal, my gig, um, and because we had asked him to do more Fozzie shows as well because it was really a cool thing um, to, to for he and I and Frank to be on stage again together. But you know. 
he knew, I knew, everyone knew with that line that the San Antonio thing was going to take off. There was no doubt that that thing was going to be uh, one of the bigger, you know, releases, certainly of the year, and possibly could could be one of the bigger bands of the genre. So the idea that we were going to carry on with Corey was obviously not going to happen. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, the all of those same kind of things that, you know, it, don't just take my word for it. It, it's, it. Again, it goes back to um, when when Bones leaves the band, as he has a few times, it isn't like we splinter off and it's like two guys go one way and the manager follows this guy. It's like it's always just everybody else stays intact and then Bones leaves. And the reason is just it's not because we don't like Bones. Bones is a great guy. As a matter of fact, he stayed at my house many times. My wife loves him. I love him. My fam- my dad loves him. My dad's always like, how's Bones doing? You know, I, I mean, literally, he's, he's a sweet man, and he's, a, he's yeah. a great entertainer, and he's a good dude. And I, you know, I like being on stage with him because he's crazy, right? I mean, he's the real deal. <laughs> And that's yeah, the thing absolutely. that that's what makes him such a powerful frontman is that it's real. There's none of this performance that he's putting on the show. What you see is what you get. And when I was in my twenties, dealing with that energy was, you know, for me, I was crazy too. I mean, we were fighting all the time, and I don't even mean within the, within the band. Of course, we did. I mean, there was all all four of us. You, you know, we were in a van for 300 days a year. So we fought like cats and dogs, but we also fought as a gang against other bands and against fans. I mean, we, we, we were just like living like wild dogs, you know, for years on the road, which was great, which is what made us a great live band. And at some point, you know, when we started getting into our 30s, I think we all just started saying, man, this kind of energy is going to get one of us killed. It's just, and it wasn't, and it, it, the joy was gone. Now, we walk off stage feeling like we were doing something special and unique, but the joy of making music was gone because the, the relationships were so splintered and so fractured. And this was right when we were making the Declaration of a Headhunter record in 2000. And I just told the guys, I said, man, I just don't want to do this anymore. And everybody else said, dude, me either. So Frank and I and Dan Dryden, who was the bass player at the time, uh, and the manager and the booking agent and all the crew guys decided that we were going to do the 60 band, which basically was just Duck Mojo, but with a singer. Um, and then we were also doing Fozzie, and it was the same guys in that band, same crew, same manager, except for Chris Jericho was singing. So we we stayed together as a unit. Now, obviously, we had a couple of lineup changes, you know, over the 15 years since, or 16 years since that glorious of a headhunter. But the one commonality has always been that nobody ever left this organization to go play with Bones and his solo band. And that, that you know, for folks who are wanting to make this an issue of Rich versus Bones, it's like, listen, everybody else was free to go play with Bones the same way I was free to go do another project with Bones or do stuff Mojo with just Bones and I. But right. and like I said, it all came down to, you know, just a sense that we just couldn't do business together anymore. And it was all of those things that made him such a special and unique artist is the things that made us decide we just didn't want to do it with him anymore. 
All right, and on to episode 42, Mr. Jim Brewer, another mega, mega crazy guest to get on this podcast. You know, when I started, if you would have told me I was going to get to talk to David Ellison and Jim Brewer within like a month of each other, I would have uh, said, you know, kill me now. <laughs> but but uh, yeah, man, Jim Brewer being on here, it was so fun, so fun to kind of interact with that guy. Uh, you know, the, he made he definitely made some blabbermouth news uh, calling, uh, uh, what did he say? What did he say? Angus treated, Angus treated Brian Johnson like a Walmart changing out a cashier. So that was crazy. So yeah, let's check out a little bit of my conversation with Jim Brewer. Kind of getting back to the record, you know, you got Brian Johnson on there, and I know that you know, obviously with the podcast, you kind of had some turmoil there, and uh, you know, with your episode with Brian Johnson, and I I listened to that prior, you know, I listened, to, you know, I have a, a podcast sure. uh, schedule, you know what I'm saying? I listen yeah. to yeah. to you on on Mondays and Tuesdays and blah blah blah. So I kind of listened right. to that prior to the to the shitstorm that it caused, and. uh and I was sitting there and, and at work, and I was like, "Man, uh, Jim's talking a lot here. This this could be uh, this could go sideways." And a couple hours later, man, I looked at my phone, and it was blabbermouth and the PRP and all these like metal sites just going on and on about it. But uh, you know, I mean, I don't want to get too much into it because I don't want to okay. get yeah. too crazy on it. But I mean, you know, how how was that for you, kind of being in the, on that side of it, and kind of uh, I think you had good intentions and you were very yes. innocent in your, what you said, yes. but you know, yeah. it, it went sideways quick. You know, how did that feel? The only part that I really was, um, upset about was for Brian to be, you know, the guy wakes up in the morning and, and even me, when I, when I did it, I didn't expect that to have, I, I had, I thought, I thought, first of all, I didn't think I had really that many listeners, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I don't check numbers. I don't do nothing. And, um, second of all, when we had, I really thought maybe people will hear it around June or July where people start going, Hey, did you ever listen to it? kind of cool conversation but it's a little weird what's going on with with brian johnson and so to wake up the next morning you know i went to bed it was a conversation late at night and then i guess it was posted and then i woke up in the morning with uh please call me asap and my and and all these radio stations and and Mike, Mike Teacher was excited. He's like, "Oh my God, we're we're number one trending!" And I'm like, "What the hell is going on?" And then I, I mean, I was in Turks and Caicos on vacation, and I, and I looked at it and I went, "Oh my God, oh my God!" And it just, I'm trying to think of everything I said, and at the end of the day, I, it's amazing how they just took a quote exactly and, and really ran with it. You know, I, I remember just saying, you know, teachers like, how do you feel? I'm like, man, he just feels like he's kicked to the curb, you know, and boom, <laughs> right. all over the world. And for, I remember Brian calling, I called Brian and I said, Oh my God, what the, he's like, Jim, you gotta be careful with social media. I went, Brian, I, Jesus, I just hung up the phone last night. He goes, you didn't, uh, you know, I got a call from my friend in England. And soon as he said that, I went, oh, my God. 
Oh my God, England. And he said, he said, he said that Jimmy Brewer said, uh, you got fired and it doesn't sound like something you'd say, Jim. And I went, no, I, no, I, I know I didn't say get fired. I was just saying how I was kind of blown away about everything, just like everyone. But, uh, you know, for him to come home and I, I'm like, why is there equipment in your, what's up with equipment? Uh, they said, what do you mean they sent it to you? What the fuck? What's going on? <laughs> what, are we, what are you talking about? Who, who's calling? Well, they don't really call. What do you mean they don't call? What are you, you're ACDC. What, what are you talking about? Don't you, what do you mean they're replacing you? Ah, oh, well, you know, I read in the paper. What do you mean you read in the paper? What's going on? So <laughs> to just express like that and for what it turned into, the, the thing that I regret the most and I still do is, um, just how it, Brian felt, you know, he suddenly was in a position where he's like, Hey, 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 I didn't, I, none of these are my quotes. Don't, don't, right. don't go on. This ain't me speaking. This is Jim speaking for me. And, um, I still, that still really bothers me. I think about it. I would have traded all that press in the world for that to never have ever gone down. But, as a fan, I will say, I, I don't think he was treated well at all. And um, I don't. And I and I, I think at first the perception was like, hey, what's going? Who's this guy? And now as time is slowly rolling on, more and more people going, huh? Uh, it's kind of weird what's going on here. What, what's what's? Brian made this statement, and they made that statement, and. People will figure out <laughs> what, what, I mean, I hold the truth. I know every raw fact, but, um, yeah, just go ahead and tell us, you know, <laughs> yeah, well, at the end of the day, I, no. I just, uh, Brian is a huge, huge entity and he is just as part as ACDC as the Angus brothers, one of whether they want to realize it or not. And, Absolutely. um, I, as a fan, and I think I could speak for a lot of fans, it was a little awkward that here's a man that's been with you for 36 years. He took you to a new stratosphere. He put you in the stratosphere. When you first heard Back in Black and Shook Me All Night Long, you no one said, wow, that Angus Young is amazing. They <laughs> went, Jesus, who... Who is this guy? Back in black. I hear the fat. What? What? How did this guy replace Bond? How is this possible? Um, and to tour and and to be part of that band and after that long, you hear Brian's hearing is is going and he can't he can't really tour. Me as a fan. And I think most fans would would think you'd see the band together in a press conference. Mm -hmm. And they're Absolutely. all like, we feel horrible for Brian here. And these, we, we put so many years together, but Brian's not going to, he's going to try to get help and he's going to come with us and introduce. And we're going to, we're going to look for a singer and we're going to move on. But you know, we all love Brian and this is kind of a goodbye to Brian tour. And to not see that, and just read a headline that says we're replacing looking for new singers and 
You don't hear anything from Brian until Axel is official. I, me personally, uh, it's a little weird. Man, Jimber is so cool. So cool to have him on the podcast. On to episode 43. This is Stevie Benton of Drowning Pool. Stevie Benton of Drowning Pool is uh, another one of those guys that I go way back with. We talked about uh, on the podcast, you know, uh, 12 volt negative earth. I know I keep bringing them back up, but, you know, Drowning Pool and 12 volt before Drowning Pool was signed. Used to trade shows out, things like that. So we had some cool stories. And, uh, you know, this is just another cool story. So let's check out a little bit of uh, Stevie Benton and myself talking. You know, what's one good, like, you know, kind of Dave story that you may may not have told out there or something, you know, something something cool like that? I mean, obviously, a goldfish is going to be hard to top, but, you know, see what you could do. Oh, man. Dude, that's tough. Every day, every day, it was something. Man, I was, just, I was trying to think back to, like, the days when we were first starting out. We were all living in this, uh, all of us in this one-bedroom apartment. And, oh, God. Um, Dave was in the one bedroom with some chick and just all kinds of hell was going on in there. Like, I don't know what they were doing, but they were just, they were getting down. I'll say that. <laughs> so we're all, you know, we're all like half lit and we're like, man, what is, what are they doing? So they, everybody's like, man, go, go peep in there to see what they're doing. I was like, all right. So I go, and I didn't want to open the door because I knew they'd hear me. So I start trying to look through the keyhole, and right when I put my eye through the keyhole, Dave jerks the door open, and he's got a boner, and it's just almost, <laughs> it's right in my eye. <laughs> right. I'm like, dude, get your boner out of my face, bro. He just had no shame, man. He had no yeah. shame whatsoever. He would... We were on tour with Seven Dust one time. They're like the first show ever. And he tapes up his genitals with like Scotch tape and walks into the dressing room just to say, Hey guys, I wanna <laughs> wanna get you guys fired up for your show. <laughs> man, the, there was just no fear in that guy, man. It was incredible. All right, and moving on to episode 44, this is Chad Lee of Chad Lee Photography, uh, most notably known for uh, shooting Pantera, Was uh, shot a lot of Dimebag stuff, and such a great guy. A lot of cool Dimebag Daryl stories on that one, you have to check that one out. Episode 45, another childhood hero of Mike Howe of Metal Church. Very cool interview. Uh, you know, had a lot of fun with that guy. Episode 46, American Standards. Those guys are always great. Make sure you're checking them out. Episode 47, this is uh, Billy Gray of uh, Madam Mayhem. Got to sit down with all those guys. That was, I think, think that was my first sit-down in-person interview. Very cool, very cool way to break that in and get down to some business with those guys. We've got Rob Rivera of Nonpoint on episode 48. And Nonpoint's one of those bands that, you know, you just you can't kill them. They're like cockroaches. But so cool to have them on the podcast and one of my favorite guests I've ever had. So let's take a listen to Rob Rivera and myself talking on Talk To Me. You know, how was this Disturbed tour you guys just did? Oh, man, it was killer. I mean, it, it, it was... We got added uh, like four months after the tour. It was booked and it was already sold out, you know, like... So, man, we got to play to so many people. I mean, I forever thankful for those guys those guys have been like all another band like big brothers you know david draymond has been like a mentor to us he's there are some of the coolest people i've ever met and they have possibly one of the top three crews i've ever, ever toured with you know and 
it was killer. I mean, we, like I said, we, we got treated with respect, you know, with like gold, you know, like, like family. And we got to play to these amazing crowds every single night. I mean, I mean, what, what, what better, <laughs> what, what, Oh, what what better situation can you ask for? You know, you play it to a sold out tour that's been sold out for right. months. Yeah, getting you know, added to a sold out tour can't did, be bad. <laughs> yeah, it definitely did not suck. <laughs> so that's awesome. Anything stand out on that tour? Any uh, you know, just crazy shows? I, I, that, because they were playing smaller venues at that point. I mean, they were kind of popping back up, and they you know booked kind of a smaller smaller venue tour. Obviously, yeah. they can still do do arenas, but you know it was kind of a cool way to kind of come back. Yeah, you know what? The, the most impressive thing, just honestly, was just playing in front of the, all those new people. And by the third song, every night consistently, we had them. You know, we grabbed them. I mean, from the first night in Vancouver, I mean, we have played Van- at that venue with Seven Dust back in '06, and we uh, we're going heading. You know, we did we we did like five shows on the way to Vancouver because we. We're based out of Chicago now, so that was a long drive to the West Coast, you know. So we're, like, uh, heading into Vancouver. It's like, man, how's this going to be, you know? Like, you know, it was just weird because we were playing to, to me, I guarantee you, it was 85, almost 90% of people had never seen Nobby in their life. Maybe not even heard the band, you know, so... Yeah. Because all the shows were just, you know, disturbed fans that had bought tickets and sold out. I mean, there were definitely people there that knew knew us, but not... Not even more than ten, fifteen percent, you know. So, and the, the lights went out, and the people just started cheering, and that was like that every single night. And then by the third song, they were just like, in in just insanity. It's like, wow, dude, this is more like Disturbed fans definitely. I mean, gave us the utmost respect. None of the shows sucked, man. Every single show we did was served. Those people were just loving us, and it's just. I mean, we, we, we gave them the best show that we could. You know, we, we threw it down as hard as we could every night, you know. And, and I think our live show definitely, you know, you know, helped win them over. Elias is a very personable guy on stage, and he's got this, this, just this aura. You know, he just knows how to control a crowd. It was awesome. I mean, I, I, would, I would wish we could do it all over again, man, because it was just an amazing experience. We're listening to Talk To Me on Lost Anarchy Radio.
This is James Morris from LA's own Downset and Noncon. And you are definitely getting it from the horse's mouth listening to Talk To Me on Los Anarchy Radio. <laughs> All right, and that was some non-point featuring Rob Rivera on drums. Very cool to have him on. And uh, speaking of drums, episode 49, Mr. Nick Menza had just passed away. I wanted to do a little uh, a little tribute episode, so I called my good friend over there at the As the Story Grows podcast, Trav Turner. He came on, and we broke down some Megadeth. So very cool to have Trav on the podcast in a very nice way to uh, give my condolences to Nick Menza and the Nick Menza family. Episode 50, Mr. Jason T. Smith returns. Jason T. Smith of Thrift Hunters, thrifty business fame. Uh, you know, that's one side of me that you guys may or may not ever know about. But my love of the Goodwill, eBay, and uh, secondhand stores, sec- you know, used record stores, things like that. And Jason T. Smith is a huge metal fan, and it's very cool to have him come on my show. I used to watch his show all the time. Very, very cool. Moving on, episode 51, Davey Mew is a Vanna. Man, this guy has one hell of a story. If you haven't listened to this episode, make sure and go back and check it out. May or may not be in your wheelhouse musically, but man, what a great guy. So let's check out a little bit of Davey Muse and myself talking. But, you know, you're joining Vanna and what you're doing now with uh, speaking to, to teens and things like that and doing a lot of spoken word type stuff. Your story reminded me a lot of like, you know, Rollins joining Black Flag and then, you know, going on to do like spoken word stuff. So, I mean, is, is Henry Rollins in your... uh you know, influence at all. That's like the biggest, if, if, if you meant what you just said, that's like one of the biggest compliments I've ever got my entire life. Uh, uh, yeah, it's funny. It's, it hasn't been said often, but, uh, with that comparison, but that's exactly sort of the, uh, 
the mentality I've had. Henry Allen has been a big hero of mine for a really long time. Um, I just, I love how passionate he is about the things that he is. And, and he, he, uh, he doesn't make apologies for who he is. He is who he is. Um, you know, you know, sun up to sundown and him, him joining black flag took black flag in that direction. You know, they were a band before him and they were doing well, but you know, they, he took black flag in a new direction, more political, more outspoken, uh, more with meaning. And that's kind of what I think that I, I was trying to do in Vanna is when I joined Vanna, um, not that they didn't have any sort of like opinion like that at all. It's just, I think it was not as focused as we, we wanted it to be. And uh, when I joined Vanna, all the guys, man, and, and I, I can't, I don't want to ever take credit for everything that happens in Vanna. It's not like it's my complete brainchild and I control the world. Uh, you know, it's five guys together and I'm the voice of those five guys. And, uh, you know, I, I feel like, you know, once I joined the band, we got our vision and we got, we got what we wanted to do. And the five of us came together and, to create something. And, you know, there were some member changes here and there, but I think that the five guys that I get to stand on stage with, you know, when I'm on tour, those are the guys that, you know, they wanted to say something. And I, you know, I, I, I want to say something too. And I feel like together we had the confidence to get in there and to do that. So, I mean, if I could, if I could be half the man that Henry Rollins is, I would be <laughs> happy with my life, man. That guy is, that guy's a friggin' legend. And, uh, you know, I, you know, I've watched multiple of his, uh, his spoken word. It's so funny because I, maybe one day my speaking will kind of progress into that, you know, kind yeah. of half spoken word, half truth, half stand up comedy. Um, and I, and I really love it. I, I think he's an incredible man. Um, I've still never got a chance to meet with, to meet him. And, uh, you know, I would love to meet with them. I would, I would love to like share a gig with them, you know, and to share a speaking gig with him. Uh, I mean, I would just love to share a conversation with the guy, you know what I mean? To be yeah, fair. Exactly. So, um, so yeah, um, crazy that you made that comparison and, uh, something that I've been kind of like silently thinking a long time, <laughs> but it's just because he's been a big inspiration to me. So I always, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily believe in heroes. Um, I think you should just be your own damn hero, but he's definitely a guy that I would draw inspiration from huge because he's done it. He's changed the game. He's changed a lot of things, especially for my life. So, um, so thank you for saying that because that's awesome. <laughs> All right. And we move on to episode 52 and that's Barry Donegan of look what I did. Barry's a great friend of the show. He was guest on episode one. I had him back on episode 52. Great guy. Great friend. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that episode 53. Robbie J, vocalist of Stuck Mojo, came on. Uh, I think it was one of his first podcasts, definitely first podcast, maybe one of his first interviews as the vocalist of Stuck Mojo. A very cool story. You got to go and check that guy out. Episode 54, Sonny Mayo, guitarist of Snot, Seven Dust, Head P.E., Ugly Kid Joe. The guy's got an amazing killer resume. And uh, he also played on the Vanilla Ice metal album that came out in the late 90s. And he told us a little story about that. So let's hear Sonny Mayo talking about working with Vanilla Ice. And the other thing that you did at that time was the uh, Vanilla Ice Hard to Swallow album. <laughs> I'll, give you, I'll give you my quick story. I'll give you my quick story because I'm going to tell you right now, I'm not making fun of you at all for this. Okay, good. But, uh, but I go to Tower Records in Nashville and I walk in and I cannot find it. Like, I know it's out, but I haven't found it. Um... And I walk up to the counter and I'm like, hey, do you guys have the new Vanilla Ice record? And the guy behind the counter starts just laughing his ass off at me. And I'm like, what? And he was he like looked to the other guy that worked there and he was like, we have been waiting for someone to ask for this record. And like I was like the guinea pig or whatever. And they just yeah. thought it was the funniest thing ever. I bought it. Now, you know, it's it's. I thought about this. You know, we've, we've 
kind of talked about doing this interview for a while, so I've been kind of racking my brain on on things uh-huh. to talk about. But but the thing with me is I was, you know, I'm 37 now, uh, so I was in 1990 when when he hit, I was 11. So that's right. like you know, and that like that was cool, you know, that was you know, uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and all that stuff. <laughs> you know, he was cool in 1990, and then so. In, Ten years later, roughly, you know, I'm almost twenty, and he puts out an album, a metal album in my genre, and I'm like, I'm like, I want to hear this. This is going to be mm-hmm. awesome, you know. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? So, I mean, I, I think I was like the perfect age for like both, you know, like to the extreme yeah. and quality, <laughs> you know. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, so dude, it's like, yeah. So I kind of hit it up right there, but I mean, just give me like a quick rundown of like how sure. that came about, how you became we were, we were a produ- part of that we were, album. We were doing pre-production for the first Amen record with Ross Robinson. And, 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 you know, it was for Roadrunner Records and Ross was going to get paid, but it wasn't going to get paid that well, you know, from the budget of this fucking hardcore, angry, you know, very artistic, very uh, just a fucking sporadic bursts of, of just dissonance that Amen is or was. And, um, and so, you know, somebody approached and they were like, Republic Records was like, we want you to produce the new Vanilla Ice record and we're going to give you this much money. And he was like, oh. Hey guys, <laughs> something's come up. Uh, will you guys play on the record? Can you play? Can you guys be my players? And we were like, "Fuck, Vanilla Ice." Okay, I needed money, dude. I was fucking broke. Well, yeah. <laughs> and and then it turned out that I got to play, do make another record with Ross fucking Robinson, who you can talk all the shit you want on him, but that guy, man, that guy stays loyal to art. If he's gonna do Vanilla Ice record, he's gonna make Vanilla Ice cry in the fucking vocal booth. He's going to punch Vanilla Ice. He's going to clothesline Sonny Mayo while I'm doing this fucking lead, this Wally. He's going to fucking rip your heart out of your chest and show it to you and say, this is yours. Come and get it. Come on. It's yours. Get it. Like, you know, remember the fucking stupid Shia LaBeouf thing? Just do it. Just do it. Like, that was was Ross 20 years ago. 18, 19 years ago. Whatever. And and that's how he was, dude. And is still to this day. He'll still do that shit. That guy stays loyal to art, so talk shit if you want to, but you don't know what you're talking about if you do. Um, that's because I do know what I'm talking about because I've been there. Oh, yeah, and yeah. so, um, and so, and you're not, not like you would talk shit, but anyone who's listening, um, <laughs> you don't know what you're talking about. So, uh, so yeah, he goes, we want you to, what you guys do, and we're like, sure. And so we end up writing this record in about seven days. We write, I don't know, eleven songs or whatever, and um, and we go and record this record, man. And Ice comes in, dude. He's he. he all he knew was that the guy that did Corn and Limp Bizkit was doing his record and writing it for him. And so Ice comes in and we're in fucking, uh, we're in uh, Indigo Ranch and we're jamming the songs as he walks in the control room as we're fucking killing it. And he's just like, yeah. holy shit. And he's like, I got to step it up. That guy's really cool, man. Rob Van Winkle is fun to hang out with. That's a cool guy. Um, so we spent hey, a lot of you- time. Huh? Yeah, I was going to say, are you still in contact with him at all? Or no, I haven't of, talked that to was, him. That was a thing? No, nah, I haven't talked to him in quite some time. But when we've run into each other, mostly it's been probably ten years since I've seen him. But when we ran into each other, when I was in Seven Dust, still actually we were doing. I was playing a show in Florida or something, and we were, hey, Sunday, what's up? You know, hey, Rob, what's up? You know, it was Brad. Yeah. So that was actually a fun record, and lots of people, people that usually mention it, are like, "Dude, I fucking love that record." Yeah, like, I put it on like the it. other night. Yeah, <laughs> I was driving. I had to go pick up my daughter from the movies, which is I'm so domesticated now, but. uh I put it on in the car and I was driving over to the to the movie theater to pick her up and I was you know just obviously getting ready for the interview I was like I, I need to go back and revisit mm-hmm. Hard to Swallow That's some but, heavy you know, ass riffs on there dude we were good fucking stuff on there man it was that was, was a fun record I mean I I remember I think Ross's quote on the record was something like there's nothing more punk rock than recording the Vanilla Ice metal record 
It's kind of true, man. Especially because we, the way we did it, we were like, we're not doing any fucking loops. It's all live. Shannon Larkin, no click track. There was no Pro Tools. We weren't fucking flying guitar parts. Every single thing on that record is live, is, is recorded on tape. Motherfucker was like, I'm punching you in. When you get punched in, I don't know if you, you know, people that aren't, that aren't familiar with, with the way the digital age is now, you can record over something fucking 30 times and go back to the original one and be like, that's the one. With this, you know, with tape, you can't do that. You push record again, that last set, that last uh, take is gone forever. Right. Right. And so, um, it was all, it's all live, dude. And, and, uh, and ice came with it, dude. He got, I mean, he literally got heavy, man. He taught his one song. I can't remember what it's called, but he got into like his, his life, his childhood. Ross, that's what they wanted Ross to do. Like they were mm-hmm. like, do this. Um, and he did it, man. And, and, uh, V ice, I told him he should have gone by Van Winkle instead of vanilla ice. Cause yeah. it's almost like, almost like he fell asleep for 10 years. He disappeared <laughs> and now he's back and he's pissed. And uh, of course he's hip hop, so he had to keep it real. So he had to keep it right. be ice. Yeah, I'm like, all right. I don't know what that means, but okay. Now we move on to episode 55. Scott Ian Lewis of Carnifex. Carnifex is a great, great metal band. Like super heavy, super groovy. Uh, you got to go check those guys out. And Scott Ian Lewis was definitely a very cool guest to have. Episode 56. This is where the show moves over to Lost Anarchy Radio. Uh, goes into that two-hour format. Very cool to have Tom Hazard come on and kind of uh, ease my way into Los Anarchy Radio. Tom had a great uh, great show on there called AMPM with Tom Hazard. So he came on to kind of ease me into Los Anarchy Radio. Episode 57, this is where I went and sat down with BC, Rashid, and Adam of Nonpoint. Sat down on their bus, talked for a little while. That's when the music started to filter into the podcast, and it was a nice way to you know introduce a lot of great new songs to you guys. Episode 58, Mitchell Lafon of One on One with Mitchell Lafon. Great guy. We talked a lot about Kiss and a lot of other great stuff. Very cool guest to have on your show. Make sure if you have a podcast out there and you need a guest to call yourself Mitch Lafon. On to episode 59, David Sanchez of Havoc. This was actually like right before the big deal that went down with Megadeth and Justice Mustaine doing all kinds of crazy stuff. So I didn't really get to talk to him about that stuff, but we had a great conversation. Episode 60. Glenn Benson of Deicide. Fucking blow me, Corey Taylor and all you fags. Now, the day that this episode happened, I was sitting on my couch. I'd been in contact with their publicist or whatnot, uh, the record label, and you know, wanted Glenn on, and he didn't really ever have a... A yes or no. And then I get an email and it's like, Glenn will be ready in 15 minutes. Now I had no, I had some preparation in my head, but nothing written down. So I just went with it. I just came down here, fired up the Skype, gave Glenn a call and uh, just kind of chatted with him. And, you know, overall, super funny episode. Glenn's actually got a great sense of humor, (laughs) but, uh, you know, but then as we were talking, you know, he, I asked him, uh, what did what did he think about bands like Five Finger Death Punch wearing Deicide shirts on stage and you know kind of giving a, a nod to him and that's when he made his uh, famous Corey Taylor comments. So uh, I, I didn't actually put that on here. Um, I actually put down another uh, another little snippet of Glenn talking about uh, talking about the, the death metal scene um, in the early '90s when he talks about you know getting some stuff together. So. Obviously, my most downloaded ep- episode by like thousands. Like this episode, once it hit Blabbermouth, the PRP, 
metal hammer, uh, fucking loud wire, every single metal site, you know, sites that were, you know, doing it in random languages had this one out there. So crazy episode and, uh, definitely have to have Glenn Benson back on, <laughs> you know, once the new album comes out and this will go down in infamy as one of my, uh, craziest episodes ever. So yeah, let's check out a little bit of a uh, Glenn Benson and myself talking. You know, just kind of kind of take me back a little bit to uh, to kind of the early days of DSI and kind of you know what was kind of going on in that like you know Tampa area you know death metal scene. Well, back in the old days. Yeah, let's talk some old uh, days. Fuck man, shit, man. We had you know when I really came on the scene here, man. Um, you know, the bands like Nasty Savage and Sabotage were on the scene here. Um. This was before Executioner, which became obituary. Yeah. This was before Morbid. This was before everybody. Yeah. I mean, that's when my I came on the scene. Um, I mean, it was small. We had a club here called Ruby's Pub. And we used to go there, man. They had metal shows there all the time. And Nasty Savage would play there, you know. And then all of a sudden, then out of nowhere comes this band, Death. And then oh, Death, yeah. Chuck, and them guys came on the scene, and we were going to the shows, and everybody and their brother, man, you know, that played in all the bands that are, you know, that made names for themselves. Those were the people that were at the shows, you know. So you had your Tardy brothers there, you had your Trey's, and you had your uh, Mike Browning, and from, I mean, uh, from Bob, Jesus Christ, the fuck is the name of his band? <laughs> But anyways, you had all these people, man. I mean, that was you know that was that was the scene then, you know. But, um, and uh, it was all mostly just local, crazy local shows and shit. You know, you get a lot of tourist tra- traffic here too. And so I think a lot of that, you know shows back then. Today too, I played Tampa a year ago, and it was a sold out show. We played during Daytona Black Week, man. It was fucking insane. So. But uh, the scene is the scene, man. I've never been a scene hound, man. I'm more of a solitude, one of them kind of uh, hermit types. You know, so. Yeah. Because whenever I go out to shows, there's always somebody's drunk girlfriend who starts swinging on me because I fucking, <laughs> you know, say something sarcastic or smart-ass, you know what I mean? So and it usually ends with the cops chasing me out. So that's <laughs> <laughs> I've had to slip out the back door of a many venue here and locally in that because I have a saying, every circus has a clown. All right, guys, on to episode 61. This is Marty McCoy of Boba Flex. Marty McCoy was uh, at a, at a, like a, like a, they had their camper. They were on tour. They were in a campground, like a KOA campground, having a cookout. He was grilling burgers as we were talking. And we ended up talking for like an hour. So I'm sure either the burgers got burnt or the burgers got cold before he got to eat. But man, what a great guy. What a great episode. Make sure you check out episode 61. Episode 62, Matt Hafey of Trivium. Man, this is another one of those like uh, you know bucket list guests to have. So cool to have Matt Hafey on the podcast. And uh, let's listen to a little snippet of myself and Matt Hafey talking, and then we will play some Trivium after that. Yeah, maybe, maybe they should have pushed that more. I don't know if they kept it quiet um, because people would think we were too young. I don't know. I'm not sure. But I, I know that that was definitely – it nowadays is definitely an advantage for us that we started that young. Um, but yeah. at the time, maybe like when, when the fans were picking popularity, it was slightly difficult for us because there were certain things we hadn't figured out. Like we definitely had figured out our music, but we hadn't necessarily figured out like our visuals as a band, like what kind of art we like, 
um, how we like to look on stage, what kind of staging, those kinds of things. And those, those are things that we've developed. I, I feel like we didn't really develop our visual style until about our fifth record in Waves, which was 2011. So like a lot of bands, when they come out with their first records, the dudes are all in the 30s, mid 30s for the first record. And so for us, our first record, I was 17. So we still had quite a bit of growing up to do. Luckily, we at least had the most important part figured out, which was the music. Was it hard kind of growing up in the public eye like that? Or, or was it just kind of that you felt like that's what you wanted to do? You wanted to be a musician and it just felt normal? I mean, when I was 12 or 11, um, I knew I wanted to be in a band like Iron Maiden, like Metallica. I remember watching the Seattle 1989 Engine Purge VHS of Metallica. And I remember pointing at the TV and saying to my mom, that's what I want to do when I grow up. So there wasn't any pressure in the beginning when we first started. But when we started seeing... It's like we, we really blew up in the UK first and yeah. we were on, like we got our first cover feature when we were like 18 or so. And the quote on the front was a quote from me because I was like a confident 18 year old because I'd already been in the band for six years at that point. And it was something along the lines of like the magazine or we said like Trivium, the next Metallica. And at that moment, it really worked out for our band in the UK but other bands started seeing that. And they started saying, who the hell is this young band calling <laughs> themselves the next Metallica? So that's when we started seeing a little bit of difficulty, you know, that things that we didn't expect. We didn't expect other bands to not be ready for this young band that had um, like a boatload of determination for what they wanted to do. Those things were a little strange. And when we initially, you know, we, our first, our second record was a sentence. The third record was the crew. The crusade was a polar opposite of ascendancy, and that was on purpose. We wanted to make a record that was completely different from the previous. And the UK loved ascendancy, and the UK did not love the crusade. But the crusade picked up in other European countries. So then we started seeing that with every record we release, we'd have different countries into our band, and different fans would love certain records and hate other records of ours. Which at first was a little jarring when you're like 19, 20, and not understanding why people don't love everything you do. But as you grow up, you start to realize that that's really good for you. It is important to have such extreme emotions about your band, and it's important to not be content to do one thing. There are enough bands that release the same song and same record every time. For us, that's something we showed from record three that we would never do. So from yeah. three on, it was something different every single record. Well, it's still Trivium, but it's us seeing what else we can do as a band. That's the one thing I do, I do remember about back then was I remember the big hype of Trivium was, you know, quote unquote, the next Metallica. I didn't realize that that was self-inflicted. I just thought that that was almost like press, uh, you know, uh, uh, the was, press. It was, it was oh, I mean, it was like, you know, that was my goal from when I was 12. That's something that I knew I wanted to do from being a kid. I wanted to be a metal band that can play arenas. Um, so it was a little bit of us saying that because that's what we wanted to do. And still to this day, I, I don't want to do it like my heroes, but I still absolutely want to be the kind of band that makes a dent on music and makes a dent in heavy music, whether it be rock or metal. I want people to know what our band is, and I want to be able to play in front of as many people as possible. I think it's just a lot more of a shock when it's teenagers saying it than when it's an adult <laughs> saying it. So yeah, nowadays, absolutely. we say the exact same thing, and people respect that. And I think that it's, it's more of a respect that it's the same thing we've been saying since the beginning. Since I was 11 slash 12 years old, I would be in a metal band that plays around the world, and I've been doing the same thing since then. And thankfully, it's been growing since then. You are listening to Talk To Me on Lost Anarchy Radio. 
Right, guys, that was some trivium here on the Talk To Me podcast, episode 63. Another crazy episode. Kirk Winstein of Crowbar coming on. Another just bucket list guest. Like, I, I loved Crowbar for so long. So many great things. And uh, I can't I can't tell you enough. Make, make sure to go and support them if they come through your town. Make sure you're buying their records and make sure you're just, uh, you know, Letting them know that you heard about them on the Talk To Me podcast. Hopefully you've heard about them way before you hear from me. But uh, let's check out a little bit of Kirk Winstein and myself talking. Oh, absolutely. So what, how's it been with uh, old sexy T, Todd Strange, back in the band? How's that been working out? Ah, it's been fantastic, man. I mean, he's always, you know, he's always been a good, very good friend. I mean, I've probably known Todd, I would say, about 31 years now. Um and we started jamming together probably in late 88, early 1989, you know, right at the time we were, we were basically forming uh, Crowbar. And um, he was with, you know, with me until he left in 1999. And we kind of lost touch, but we left on good terms. You know, it was just, he had had enough. He wanted to get a real job, get a house, have a, you know, get married. Have, have a, he has a son, you know, 15-year-old son. And, um, you know, we kind of lost touch, and he kind of went his own way, and we continued doing my thing. And then in the last like year and a half, or a little, maybe a little over that, you know, he just started popping up, you know, coming around to the bars on the weekends, <laughs> you know, and we ended yeah. up keeping in touch. And I, I was joking for a while, you know, him and Robin, I'm like, y'all like two 15-year-old girls. Like every, every morning at like 10, he'd text Robin, what's up, fool? They say, hey, what, what are you doing? You know, it took Thursday or Friday or whatever you want to meet us up with some beers. Yeah, sounds great, whatever. So, uh, you know, it was just a situation where, where um, you know, with Jeff, it just, we had kind of known for a while. It looked like it wasn't going to work out. And it was a situation where it just didn't. I mean, that happens, you know. I mean, he, 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 Jeff's a great guy, solid bass player, and he's in, he's actually in Lower Dying now, which, is, which I'm a big fan of the band, and they're, they're great guys. I think they just started their tour a couple of days ago. But, um, you know, it was a natural thing for the first choice. You know, I just asked Todd, I said, are you in any kind of situation to uh, to be able to tour full-time, you know, as your job? And he said, yeah, absolutely. You know, my son's 15, gone 16, whatever. And he's like, you know, uh, he's a super bright kid. He stays with my mom, you know, while I'm gone. So soon he'll be old enough, you know, to I'll just throw him the keys to the, to the truck and uh, he can drive himself to school and what, you know. Whatever. Yeah. So it was a situation where it's it's kind of funny because talk about you know talking about how things come about how things come full circle. It's like Todd literally left Crowbar 
got got a job. I'm not sure the name of the company, but and became a licensed uh, diesel mechanic and heavy machinery mechanic, and literally kept that job for 16 and a half years or whatever. <clears throat> and you know, a few weeks before we started this this tour that we just did with Cargus, he quit. So it was kind of like, you know, wow. it was crazy. He's like, dude, my life went from crowbar to the regular job, family thing, whatever. And then next thing I know, I'm back in crowbar, you know, all these years later. So it's been, I mean, he's a great dude, really, really killer bass player. Um, you know, he's, he's got, got killer. I was talking to, to Rex Brown, actually, you know, of course, from Panther and Down, um, about it. And he, he's like, oh, you know, because I was calling him, which happy birthday Rex I was at uh, during the tour and he's like oh he, he asked me who the hell you got on the base boy because he, he doesn't keep up much on, on the old social media and whatnot I said we got old sexy teabag he was like god damn that's awesome you know he said he, he said he's always had great stage presence you know super cool guy give him a hug dog. I said no problem man. so uh, it's working out great I mean he's a lot of fun he's he's uh you know he's got a great attitude like his his whole thing is very few people in life get a second chance at something, you know, like when he walked away from, from it, believe me, we were far from a popular band, but you know, we had our cult following and we were a touring working band with, with real record deals and whatnot. So, um, you know, like you said, very few people have a situation like that to, to get a second chance. And he's like, I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna piss it away, man. He goes, you, you know, um, and he, he's, he's enjoyed it. We were home one day. And I, and I called him like, you know, the day, day after we got home, he's like, I'm like, what's up? He goes, I'm, he goes, I'm fucking bored. He goes, I'm ready to go back on tour, you know? <laughs> All right. And now on to episode 64, Jeff Walker of Carcass, another, another bucket list guest. Uh, I cannot tell you how much I love the album Heartwork. I even argue with him on the episode about if uh, Heartwork is their best album in which he does not agree with me. But if you like metal and you have not checked out Heartwork, that is one album I can put on at the beginning and just let it go. Let it go over and over and over because it's so great. Episode 65 was my one-year anniversary episode, and Max Cavalera comes on. And, uh, you know, he was in Soulfly, but he was also doing Return to Roots. So I got to break down Roots with Max Cavalera. Very cool to have him on the podcast. Very cool to just sit back and not have to worry about shoehorning in a couple of... Uh, Sepultura questions. I just got the free reign to just sit there and ask him all about recording roots and all kinds of crazy stuff. So let's listen to a little snippet of uh, Max Cavalera and myself talking. That's that's good to hear. You know, because I think what we did with roots, what it, why it worked, I think because it was like a experimental um, kind of thing. Was uh, especially the down tuning um, that is similar to what Corn was using. But when we played the way we play very different from corn so the songs really turn out different and you have uh, for me stuff like roots bloody roots and attitude and cutthroat um it's actually very simplified i think we were really going back to minimalistic ways of, of writing songs instead of complicating them it's the opposite it's very simple like roots bloody roots it's almost like the same riff over and over like a mantra um <laughs> except for the end um, but it's so catchy. It's like it's like super super catchy, and you cannot help but get the groove going in your head. You know, like once you hear that. And my my best memory of Roots was actually uh, when we went to, to to Europe to do the summer festivals, 
And when we hit the first note of roots and you have 50,000 people jumping together with the, in the same rhythm as the band, it was something, it, it was a sight to see, man. It was like something to behold. It was, it was impressive. And, and I love, I love that. And that's one thing I was talking to Igor about it. When we play this song live, let's try to play them as close to the album because Igor has the tendency to go fast. It's, it's just <laughs> his, his mechanism. And, and sometimes it's too fast, you lose the heaviness, you lose the groove. So I, start, I was trying to talk to him, to like, let's keep it, let's not try to go too fast, let's just keep it like the, the tempo close to the record, because that's the, the best heavy groove tempo for the album. And when Detector Sheet comes out, then you can go as fast as you want. I don't, I just, <laughs> then I don't give a shit. <laughs> the night is over. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so I saw actually I saw you guys on the Roots tour. I saw you guys open for uh, it was Ozzy, Danzig, you and Biohazard, in a you know big stadium and our big arena in Nashville, Tennessee. And the one picture I still have twenty years later is Igor's drums look like they were about to fly off the stage at any moment. Like he was just hitting so hard and like all of his drums were just shaking. Like I still can just picture that in my brain today. Yeah, Igor's a hard hitter, man. He he hits real hard. Um, in fact, he used to draw names of people he didn't like and, and stuff like <laughs> that. You know, he would write people's name in, in or, or 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 faces. I think at one time he had he had Adolf Hitler in one of his toms, and uh, it was like so he could beat the crap out of it. You know, it was like so insane. But playing with Igor is always fun because he does hit one of the hardest hitting players I ever play with and it's it's really uh it's really exciting when you're playing with somebody like that. Alright and we move on to episode sixty six, Etzel from Dope. Another a guy that I toured with back in the early two thousands. Very cool guy. They had a new album out, Blood Money is out. Uh they just did the Die Motherfucker Die Reunion tour with a classic lineup of uh, AC Racy, Virus and Etzel. I know it was a huge success. I saw photos from all over the country. It looked like packed houses everywhere they went. And uh, Etzel Dope, another guy, man, that can just talk and talk and talk. I think I would love to have Etzel and Rich Ward on the same show because I could just sit back, hit record, and just you know, have my, have those two guys talk to each other. And I think uh, I think that would be amazing. So let's uh, we'll check out a little bit of uh, Etzel and myself talking. Yeah, absolutely. That's the one thing I noticed when I saw the tour dates come out. You know, because a lot of bands are constantly on the road now, but they're constantly on the road for three weeks to six weeks at a time. And it seems like this Blood Money tour or the Die Motherfucker tour is uh, extremely long for, for a tour in 2016. Well, you know, I don't know. It's been a long time since I toured, so to me it seems like a normal length. But really and truthfully, it was about putting this group together and just keeping it together for as long as we could because who knows when we're all going to have our schedules line up again. So that was really the, the intent behind it was, you know, everybody's going to fly out, we're going to do pre-production, and then let's hit the road and let's do as many dates as we can, um, and then we'll regroup afterwards and see what's what. But, you know, we're all busy, man. You know, everybody in the band has either, a you know, some kind of a gig or uh, or other bands that they're involved in. I mean, you know, AC's a really busy guy. He's got some stuff that I'm not even allowed to talk about that's really cool that he'll be announcing coming up that he's doing. He's also been playing bass with Joan Jett and the Blackhearts for years, and he's got his own thing. And then you got Virus, who plays with Tony Arnell, and he was doing the David Raymond Device Project forever. And uh, Racy did the Murder Dolls. And everybody's busy, man. Like, I respect all these guys and their 
abilities to work outside the band and you know, I produce a bunch of stuff and I mean, I don't have to get into what I do. I'm a lunatic. I got 122 things going on all the time. So for us to be able to all together lock up this frame of time to go out and do this, um, it's pretty special, man. So, um, and again, I think the enthusiasm for the fans from the fans for the live record and for this tour was really cool for us to see. And, and for that, even though we'll of course play some of the blood money stuff because you know, we have a new album that that's coming out. This is this is a tour about the old school. It's the old school dudes getting back together to go out there, and we're gonna play a bunch of old stuff, and we'll drop in some new stuff too. But I think that's the spirit of what this is, and the spirit of what really ignited the fans to get behind it. So that's what we're gonna do. I think it's gonna be a lot of fun. So on this tour, you know, basically getting the the dope never stops so you you know you basically go back and you get uh, one of the classic lineups and i know this is obviously on a different scale but it sounds very similar to maybe what guns and roses did where you know axel kept the band going but then all of a sudden you know you get uh slash and you get duff back in there and the crowd uh you know gets more excited for the for the shows again is that kind of what's going on i think so i mean i think the only difference is, is that you know i like if you want to call me axel and you want to call virus slash <laughs> Um, we continue to play together through the years, though, whereas those guys have just, you know, not had any contact or any any progress together. So um, I think it's more like we're putting four guys together that haven't been together in a very long time, whereas I feel like with Guns N' Roses, it's a lot more just about Slash and Axel. Um, but, um, but again, I really like to use the word fraternity because a lot of people sometimes lose sight of what it is and you know, who's in Dope now? It's like, dude, Dope has always been, with all due respect, Edsel Dope and the group of dudes that were on the same page with Edsel Dope at the time that I was making records or getting ready to go on tour. And, you know, if I had to compare it to other acts, I mean, you can compare it to, to Nine Inch Nails on a smaller level or even, you know, Manson or Zombie where there's one kind of steady focal point of the band and then there's a group of guys that I, I rely on for support. And depending on what they're up to and what I'm up to, we're able to come together and do cool stuff. And on this record, um, you know, I worked with a lot of different cats. And, of course, I work with Virus. I work with him all the time. But it's funny to me when I release a video and maybe Virus isn't in the video or and it's like, oh, where's he at? It's like, you're a fucking idiot, man. It's like we're all on the same team. They're not in competition with each other. No one's getting kicked out of the band. No one's if no one's uh, no one's abandoning the band. Um, this band has been around for so long that I, I really think it's funny when people think that one song or one lineup can sort of uh, re-identify who we are or what we're doing. It's like, dude, if you've been into this band, go see the band. You'll like it. It always delivers. Um, you know, I, I just, I think that, you know, sometimes people's immediate reaction to type on their keyboard is a little bit, uh, extreme and goes beyond allowing things to process in your mind for a second before you react. We've become such an instantly reactive society of keyboard mongers that immediately react to what we see or what we hear or what we feel instead of like letting it soak in for a second. And uh, and not not rush to such incredibly quick, overarching judgments of things. It's kind of silly, but I just do what I do, man. It's all good. 
I'm very grateful that I've been able to do this for as long as I have and uh, and have as many fans as we do that support what we do. But, um, you know, I just try to cool people's jets sometimes when they overthink things. All right, guys, and we move on to episode 67. That was my Louder Than Life preview. I had uh, Baco from Cobras and Fire and Mike from Off Our Meds podcast. They both came on to break down the Louder Than Life episode. They came on to break down the Louder Than Life festival that happened here in Louisville, Kentucky. And now we move on to episode 68. Man, this is a twofer from the for the ages. Chuck Billy of Testament and Carly Coma of Candiria, two guys that are great vocalists, um, different time period bands. But man, put out those two guys put out probably two of the best records of 2016. So that's a great one-two punch for your ear holes uh, here on the podcast. If you haven't heard the Brotherhood of the Snake by Testament, what a great album! Uh, Carly Coba and those guys put out another great album. Great, great, great. But uh, yeah, so if you haven't checked out that episode, make sure to go and check that one out. Um, I did a couple little what I call the LTL minis. Those are louder than live mini episodes um, with Jake Figueroa of Crowbots and one with Tom Maxwell of Hell Yeah. Tom Maxwell and I go way back. Also, Twelve Volt Negative Earth played with uh, Nothing Face way back in the day. Another great, uh, another great band. And so I talked to him a little bit about uh, will Nothing Face ever get back together type stuff. And you know that one got a little bit of traction, not too crazy. Let's talk to Tom Maxwell for a little bit, and then we will check out some Nothing Face. I always hear, you know, Mudbane's never going to do anything. Pantera's never going to do anything. Well, where's the nothing face talk, man? Like, that's it's just like, what? I buried that, man. Oh, come on. Dude, was I su- did. Such a classic band. It was, man. It was a good time. But, you know, the fucking people change and yeah. people are different. They're not the same people. <laughs> Matt Holt, you know, is doing his thing. And- yeah. You know, we don't get along. I don't talk. I don't want nothing to do with him yeah, or his life. Yeah, neither Jerry and Glenn, you know. Dude, <laughs> it's not going to happen, man. <laughs> oh, man. I have, I have dignity. Oh, nice. So, so, huge festival comes along and says, we're going to pay nothing face X amount of dollars. You never have to talk to each other. No. Just get on stage. Nothing. happen. Uh-huh. All right. I would rather people that saw the band in its heyday when yeah. it was great remember that than yeah. go up there at some hack version with a singer that can't fucking do it. <laughs> That's always the scary stuff, man. Yeah, that's the bottom line. Singers are always such... You know, it's just... You know, it's like this, man. And I'll put it in... in, in fucking Vinny put it put it to me this way, too. All right. It's like, you know... You get a bad divorce from your first wife. Yeah. You ever think about going back to her after you get remarried and you're <laughs> happy? You know what I mean? It's the same shit. Right. I mean... Who am I? Who's going to be happy about it? I mean, basically the fans. Right. But the fans are going to be disappointed when they see something that they don't want, something that's not, you know. Oh, man. I don't know. It's such a cool band. It It, was, man. It's so funny, too. You know, you guys, like I talked about this, I had an interview with um, Carly Coma from Candiria. And we, you know, they're coming back out with a new album after 10 years. Such such good stuff, man. But, uh, you know, when we were at the at the Riot Fest, you know, Misfits, and then there's a lot of bands that were kind of those early 2000s, Thursday and Glassjaw, and a lot of those bands kind of coming back together for the paycheck refused. A lot of those bands kind of come back around, and, and, you know, while you're gone, your mystique grows, and you're, you know, you're not just putting out hack albums after hack yeah. album. And I think Nothing Face is probably in that in that discussion of probably, you know, the, but, the, the mystique but of the band Like grew. I said, you know, I just don't, we, you know, we, there's just nothing there anymore. You know, yeah. there's no communication, there's no desire. I don't need to do it. Right. I don't have to do it. I'm happy where I'm at, and, you know, I'm going to leave it right where it is. Dead. I will say, or I will ask you, uh, do you talk to Bill at all? Not really. Not yeah. too much. Yeah, every, like, one, every once in a while. Yeah. He always seemed like a solid dude. He is. Yeah. He's a solid guy. Solid so he's, guy. You know, he's got his, he 
he's got a family now and he's doing his thing. He just moved back to Maryland. And uh, yeah, I talk to Tommy Sickles all the time. Yeah. He's like, me and him are still tight. I still make music with him. That'd be great. You are listening to Talk To Me on Lost Anarchy Radio. Side and you're listening to Talk To Me. Man, you gotta love Nothing Face. Uh, what a great band. What a great, great band. All right, and now we move on to episode 69. 
And this was a star-studded episode featuring interviews from Louder Than Life with uh, Neil Fallon and Dan Maines of Clutch, Paolo of Trivium, Benji and Dan of Skindred, Ryan of the Amity Reflection, and Parr and Hannes of Sabaton. <laughs> and uh, Mark Tremonti pops in for one question. But man, you can't, that's a, that is a star-studded podcast right there. Episode 70, Don Jameson of That Metal Show and uh, Biff Byford of Saxon both came on. What a great episode with Don. Super funny guy. I love having like other podcasters, comedians, things like that. People that talk for a living. Having those guys on the podcast are always so great and so easy to talk to. Fun episode. Make sure you guys go back and check that one out. Episode 71, Chris Beatty of Hatebreed. Uh, Hatebreed and Devil Driver and Devil You Know came through town. Uh, I went down and sat down for a little while with Chris Beatty of Hatebreed. What a fun episode. Cool guy. And I uh, got to talk to him about the early formations of uh, Hatebreed, things like that. Chris Beatty being, you know, one of the two original members, him and Jamie Justa, both of Hatebreed. Um, episode 72, Mike Spritzer of Devil Driver. This one was a, a bit of a, a shocker because, you know, I had been promised Dez. I get down there. Dez is under the weather. They they give me Mike. I'm not really familiar with Mike. I don't know much about him. But, uh, you know, I was like, I, I, and I didn't even lie to him. I was like, dude, I prepared for Dez. I had cold chamber questions. I had, you know, forming devil driver questions, things like that. And he was like, dude, I get this all the time. Let's just sit down and chat. And so I asked him a few things like, you know, what he was into and all the other stuff. And then we went from there. Ended up being one of the coolest guys that I got to interview all year. So make sure you guys go back and check that out. Here's a little bit of a snippet of um, Mike and myself talking. And one day Jeff came home. He looked really bummed. I was working on some mixes for my own band and put a 12-pack of beer in front of me. He's like, drink this with me. (laughs) And I was like, oh, shit, what happened? And he told me that Evan didn't want to go to Europe for whatever reason. And he's telling me all the reasons, and I'm not even really listening to him. I'm just contemplating in my head. I'm in college. You know, I got a band I'm working on. I got a job, and uh, they're supposed to leave in two days. Wow. And opening up for uh, Inflamed in Europe. That's a sick tour, too. Yeah, and a couple weeks before that, one of my friends had come up to me in one of my music classes at UCSB and was like, dude, you know who Devil Driver's going on tour with in Europe? And I'm like, who is Inflames? I'm just like, fuck. Like, because I'm, I'm a big Inflames fan. Oh, yeah. Have been for a long time. Great band. And uh, so I offered to go. And he said, well, it's not 100% sure yet. Let me, uh, we're going to find out for sure tomorrow. And... Jeff got up earlier than I did, and you know, shortly after that, he texted me. He's like, "Dude, go get your passport." I had a passport, right, but it was man. expired. So, is this something like, like this is not music you just learn overnight? So, I mean, were you familiar with it at all, or was this no. like you just crash course? I I was it? I had never played. I wasn't really much of a. You know, we played at the time we we're in drop B, and I wasn't really much of a drop tuning <laughs> person anyway. Right. And actually, the funny thing is, I love it now. Um. No, it it was it, the music was much different, and I actually had a pretty hard time learning it. Even though the stuff on the first record is fairly simple, but it's just a lot of there's a lot of weird right hand mm-hmm. stuff, yeah, in the music that I was not used to, and I learned it best I could. I think we, we were opening up, so I think I had to learn like six or seven songs. That's not too bad. Yeah, it wasn't like I had to learn like fifteen songs or anything like that. And I stayed up all night with Jeff. Berkman came over a couple times. Miller came over a couple times. Evan was supposed to come over, but he never did. Yeah. And because I was just supposed to fill in, I wasn't supposed to be a permanent member. And 
but we stayed up all night and next day or uh or before that i drove down to la got my passport expedited and didn't have it ready yet and then the next day uh, i had my mom go to the business she lived closer to la yeah go pick up my passport for me and we were driving down in a van to lax and literally my mom gave me my passport <laughs> that's awesome and i got on a plane and they had a different flight because they had to book mine in the last minute yeah and i uh got on a plane and headed to uh, gothenburg and my first show was with them opening up for in flames in their hometown god how many people roughly you think i think it was about somewhere but be- i can't remember somewhere between four and six thousand i think oh that's not well yeah, yeah they weren't I was thinking like Europe a festival or something, you know? It was on their soundtrack to to Escape Tour, and they've gotten a lot bigger in Europe since then. <laughs> Obviously, yeah, that's that's insane. So, was this a style of music that you grew up playing? So you kind of... Made- yeah, I always wanted to be in a heavy metal band. I wasn't a huge fan of Devil Driver, but there were songs that I liked yeah. on the first record. And I, uh, I, I really liked Cold Chamber's third record. There's a lot of songs on that, so there was. You know, I was intrigued yeah, you know, right. to be in the band, and a lot of the guys, you know, were my best friends. I mean, I hung out with them anyway. Yeah. So, so you had a rapport with them, so it wasn't building that band chemistry was already kind of there. So yeah, and we had played shows together, and we hung out all the time in college, and went to parties, went to bars. So basically, what you're saying is, you get the call, you're gonna, or you get the, you know, basically you're gonna do it, and then first time you play with Des and everybody technically is on stage or did you get rehearsals in there no no rehearsal just flat running out on stage there you go yeah and I the biggest problem with the running it was I, I knew all how to play all the riffs but uh, I was always I didn't know what came next right and they did they had already done things a little bit different live or sped things up and I had a bootleg of them playing in Toronto okay that was a, a fairly good recording and I just listened to that over and over again and made notes on the plane and <laughs> Um, yeah, I was, by the time I finally got to Europe, man, I, luckily I had a day to sleep. Right. And then the next day, just we got up and played the show. Just basically sitting there with headphones in for the time you wake up to the time you hit stage, just going through the riffs. Sitting in the dressing room. It was like a, it seemed like it was like a small basketball arena. Like nothing, nothing too huge, but there were locker rooms there, so we had a lot of room to set up. And, Did you have you know. a cheat sheet of... Didn't I didn't bring out a cheat sheet? No, no, didn't have to do that. We opened up with nothing's wrong, and you know it starts. It started off with Jeff playing the the opening riff, and then it goes to me, and everyone else stops. And of course, I screwed that up. Right. I played a couple wrong notes, but whatever. But after that, it was. I think by the third show, I was pretty cozy, and I, was, I remember we went to Norway the next day, and then I think we went back to Sweden after that, and I think we played um, not Gothenburg, but. Uh, What's the other big city in Sweden? Stockholm. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, went back to Stockholm. And by that time, it was it was really cool. But And then as the tour went on, I started to hear rumors that Evan might not be in the band anymore. Oh. And I, that got me super excited. And they had basically told me that I was in the band on, on that tour, more or less. And then when we got home, they told me I might not be in the band because they were considering another guy, this guy named Joe Schmidt from a band called Pressure 4-5. Okay, yeah. But he had just gotten married. His wife wanted to have kids. They wanted to start a family. And it just would have been uh, too stressful. And I can't remember if they just... I know, actually, I never asked right. um, if they had just picked me or if they, you know... 
or Joe just said he didn't want to do it. <laughs> and I actually just saw Joe recently at a at a birthday party, and he's a <laughs> he's a sheriff now. All right, on to episode 73, Doc Coyle returns. Doc was one of my first guests on the podcast. Doc has a great new podcast out called The X-Man. Uh, a lot of fun stuff. It seems like every week he's you know getting a huge guest and breaking some news. On to episode 74, this was uh, Pantera's Far Beyond Driven, broken down by myself and Haran of Battlecross. Uh, Battlecross came through town with Unearth and Soil Work, so I went down to the club, the venue, and Haran and myself sat down and broke down uh, Pantera's Far Beyond Driven. A very fun episode. Uh, let's see, episode 75, Trevor Phipps of Unearth. Unearth, man, when they came out, they came out of the gates, like, just, just making you remember that guitar was something to be played. And uh, Trevor Phipps and myself talked about that. So let's take a listen to Trevor and myself talking about uh, the formation of Unearth, and you know, maybe it's a, a little slap in the face to New Metal. My thing when I was thinking about when the oncoming storm kind of hit, like we were coming out of New Metal still. I mean, it was still, you know, 03, 02, you know, that whole, that, the, the, like was, the last wave anti-new of... anti-New Metal. Yeah, it was so crazy. And then, you know, when you guys came out, you know, guitar solos and, and just actual being being able to play the guitar well was almost frowned upon all those years of new metal. And then you guys popped up and, you know, there were other bands too. I'm not just saying you guys were the first, but I'm saying like that was one of those albums, you know, when it hit, you're like, oh, fuck. You're like, oh, yeah, I forgot people actually still know how to play guitar. Well, that's where the uh, new wave of American metal came from was the underground because metal like real metal wasn't cool anymore. Right. You know, we I'd, I'd go see shows and I'm, I'm this band called Grave I went to oh, see yeah. and there was probably 15 people there I saw Nile maybe 30 people yep. um, so metal just wasn't cool so the, the bands that the kids that grew up liking metal that didn't like new metal mm -hmm. all, all started playing shows in the underground yep. and to, to play in front of any kind of, kind of audience you played with hardcore bands Right. so we booked our first show on our own dime it cost 600 bucks to rent the package and, and the tour and it was uh, All Out War and Buried Alive. We're doing a, nice. a, a tour. And we, we booked the show ourselves and opened it just to, just to show this is what we're about. So that's a straight up hardcore show. <laughs> and uh, we played in front of people and just started to build from there. So we might have some hardcore elements, but it's not really hardcore. It's, it's just a metal band that came up in the underground. So yeah. Same with Shadows Fall, same with Lamb of God, same with Killswitch Engage. These are metal bands that had a different twist on metal and it was anti-new metal at the time. <laughs> right. And it took a while to build. What were you guys' stances on new metal at the time? Were you truly, like, you know, you guys were all talking about anti-new metal. Were you guys, like, were you an anti-new metal person, or did you actually listen to Korn and all that nonsense? Um, by anti, I mean, we wanted to try, we, we didn't want to play it. Yeah. You know, of course, Korn, Korn has some songs. Uh, I don't know if you want to call it Gossmack new metal. They have some songs. Deftones is kind of yeah. new metal. And that... I think that's the one band that, 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 that did kind of transcend into mm -hmm. different worlds. Yeah. Uh, but at the time, they were new metal. Um, I know Cold Chamber had some songs. But it, it wasn't something where I bought the records. Yeah. You know, there's some songs. If they're on a sampler or I hear them, like, that's, that's a good song. But um, I think Korn was maybe the first one that I liked, first record, and after that it was done. <laughs> yeah, that first. Honestly, that first. Uh, they, they, they got a little cheesy with the lyrics, you know, like the song Adidas. I thought that was a whole kid. It's metal, you know, so. I went back and I'm, I was, you know, roughly about 15, I think, when, when the first Korn album came out. And I thought it was a masterpiece at the time. I went back not too long ago and listened to it again. And I was listening to the lyrics to Shoots and Ladders. And I was like, wow, 
That's real cheesy. We were kids though, so but it's, I, you know, when I was a kid, I was like, "That's kids awesome." Kids eat that up, and like <laughs> ball tongue is pretty cheesy. Yeah. That's a heavy well, song for the time. On to episode seventy-six, Saint Dog, formerly of the Cottonmouth Kings, now just a solo artist. You know, cool concept to have a different uh, a different style of music to have on the podcast. You know, it was neat to have have a guy from that from that world that uh, you know. Uh, maybe the Juggalo world coming onto the show. Very cool guy to have on. That was a lot of fun. Episode 77, Chris Aiken of the Classic Metal Show. This was a cool episode, man. You know, he, he was all hopped up on Mountain Dew Chip. But, uh, yeah, he just, uh, I let him go, man. I, I gave him a couple of topics and let him talk. And, boy, can that guy talk. So it was a lot of fun having Chris Aiken on the show. Make sure you guys check out that Classic Metal Show. And make sure to head over there. And uh, you can always download the episode that they had of me on their show. A lot of fun. Episode 78, Glenn Hughes, Deep Purple, Black Sabbath. He has a great new solo album out this year called Resonate. Glenn Hughes being my first Rock and Roll Hall of Famer on the podcast. Very cool to have him on and, uh, and got to talk to him about a lot of great stuff. So make sure to check out that one. Uh, man, we're ending up on the end of the year here. So episode 79, Eric Rogers of Stereo Mud. Eric Rogers, another guy that I toured with a little bit back in the late 2000s. Um, I knew a little bit about his story about Stereo Mud. Obviously, you know, I, I, every chance I get to talk about it, if I was on tour with somebody that, you know, was in a band that I enjoyed or was in something that uh, I could learn about, I always asked him about it. So I had some inklings of the Eric Rogers story, but I didn't have all of it. So uh, you know, so it's nice to sit down and chat with an old friend for about an hour or so. So let's check out a little bit of my conversation with Eric Rogers. I mean, how was it for you kind of going into it with, with some seasoned vets at that point? And, you know, you're kind of the, the new guy coming in. Well, you know, one thing, I mean, each one of them were, it was it was considered an even playing field. Everybody everybody treated each other with respect. Um there was, but for me, as an artist who, although I had not had the caliber of success that they had had, I had toured, I had written, I had recorded, you know, I, I, I'd done enough that I, I mean, I got the game by the, you know, I, I understood the game a lot better, you know, going into it. And I think, you know, them being Joey, Joey said, if you've met Joey Z, you know what a big hearted person he is. Right. Yes. So, and and same with Corey, you know, and, and of course already had that family connection from playing with his brother, you know, and knowing Clint from Seven Dust, and and even back before that, you know, when Steel Rain and Clint and Corey were playing together in that band, and you know, so we all knew each other. So it was just the first time for us playing together. So it was kind of a there was a respect between all of us, mm-hmm. you know. From, from vocal performance for you know bass player for from what we were doing and at the same time you also had that that push to to do your best you know to write something a little bit better to work on it was it the right thing you know our, our motto was always is it undeniable you know was each part undeniable could you know was it going to be was it the best song it could be you know and and of course I think every artist wants that they yeah. want every you know every song from start to finish to be the best that it can it doesn't always translate you know once you get it recorded and, and even you know fans don't always realize that the record is only one piece of what that song is conceptually you know it's it's that piece and it's the piece you're stuck with because that's what's on the album but it can still change live you can still do things to it and it's always growing it's almost a living breathing 
entity, you know, because it's a part of you. All right, guys, and on to the final episode of 2016, and that would be episode 80 with Chris Sinzak of the Decibel Geek Podcast. Another great episode to you know have on here. We talked, we broke down some Pantera, but we also talked about how he. Uh, started the decibel geek podcast how aaron camaro came in and i know a lot of you guys that listen to me you listen to them so i know it's always fun when you hear like you know worlds collide things like that i always enjoy when i hear uh two podcasters that i listen to uh come together and talk together so it's always fun and it's always fun for me because i listen to those shows too so uh when you hear those voices interacting with you it's always crazy through your headphones. So, man, 2016, you know, for all the celebrities that died and all the tragedies that happened, uh, for my world, the Talk To Me podcast world, what an amazing year. I can't uh, can't wait for 2017. I got my email confirmation today for a huge guest to start off 2017 with. Next week, I'm going to have Shauna Potter of the band War on Women. Make sure you guys check those guys out before I get the before that episode comes out and then we will move on to some amazing guests. Not that Sean is not going to be amazing, but you know, huge names in the rock and roll world. Thank you to everyone who has checked out the talk to me podcast. Make sure you're supporting on patreon.com slash talk to me. Make sure you're reaching out facebook.com slash talk to me. Talk Twitter's at talk to me. Talk Instagram is talk to me pod. Make sure to just check it out and reach out. And once again, I hope you guys have a great 2017. I hope you guys had a wonderful 2016. And from the bottom of my heart, Thank you to everyone out there that listens to the show each week. It means the world to me. And I just want to say, you know, I love you all. As crazy as that sounds. Have a great week, everybody. So for the Talk To Me podcast, I am Joshua Toomey, and I will talk to you guys on Thursday. 